Hi, this is David Oldfield, and you're listening to Australian Survivor Archives. Welcome to Australian Survivor Archives, the only podcast going over the complete history of Australian Survivor from Whaler's Way right through to the current day. When I say at the beginning of these, I'm excited for today's episode. Let's be honest, I lie half the time. I don't give a shit about the other 53 episodes we've done. They're all crap. They're all boring. No one wants to listen to them. You've wanted to get to this episode. This is the one you've all been waiting for. We are so excited to not only get back to interviews, but today's interview, it's a big one and one that you are not going to want to miss. I'm going to start off by saying that my name is Ben and I wish I had brought a zesty salad tonight. Hey, Ben. Hey, listeners. Let's just say this. It's an absolute pleasure to be here tonight for this interview. Now, you're right, Ben. We've had some big interviews since starting ASA, but this is this would have to be the most anticipated interview we've ever done. Like, this is something two years in the making, probably even longer for you. And I know you've been talking to this contestant over years um, about possibly getting an interview with him. And, and today we've got it. Now, there's a reason why I've got Sir Donald Bradman in the background for the people here listening, uh, watching this podcast on, on YouTube. This is Sir Donald Bradman, one of the greatest cricketers of all time. Here today, we're to interview one of the greatest Australian survivor players of all time. Now, Ben, I would normally introduce the person that we're interviewing, but... I'm a professional and you really wanted to do this. So I didn't want to have an argument here on ASA. So I'm allowing you as much as I wanted to do this. I'm allowing you the honors. Allowing me. Wow. <laughs> Thank you for that, Matt. I didn't know that's how it worked, but okay, we'll take that. Yes. No, I, I, I needed to uh, be sure that we can properly introduce our guest today because he has been referred to as the master tactician, the Lord mayor of the jungle, the puppet master, the master chef, and the seventh wonder of the ancient world. He has had the most episodes named after him on this very podcast. He has appeared on numerous other reality shows, but did not leave a legacy and impact on any of those compared to what he did on season two of Australian Survivor. It is a massive, massive honour to welcome to Australian Survivor Archives, the one, the only, Mr. David Oldfield. David, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Well, thank you to both of you for that extraordinary prelude to my simple presence here this evening. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's, I really don't know what to say except, well, thank you. I had no idea that you guys were so enthralled, you know, particularly with our series, but um, even in that sense, just with my involvement and contribution. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. David, is Survivor something that you talk about very often or is this a bit of a a rare experience that you get to go back after all these years and, and talk about your, your days out on, in Vanuatu. It's actually pretty rare because, you know, as, as you know, in this particular survival was 15 years ago and I have done a lot of shows since, and I've, I've done a lot of 
you know, I had my own radio show for five years, so I've done a lot of media since. And the fact that I did Survivor seems to have fallen into the background in many respects to a degree that people often say, oh, hang on, you did Survivor, didn't you? You know, it's not, it's not in the forefront of their mind as to the things that I've done which in many respects is a shame for me because of all the things that I've done from a reality television point of view, it is the thing which is foremost in my mind. I mean, it's the, it's the show that I enjoyed the most. It's the only show that I would say, hey, you know, I'd really think about doing that again. If they told me that it was going to back up and we're going to go straight back into the jungle the day it finished, I would have done that. I loved doing it. And I didn't really know anything about it when I was first asked to do the program. And so, in fact, they originally approached me saying that it was the mole that we were going to be doing. I guess they just didn't want to give away what it was. And so it's an unfortunate thing that many people don't immediately associate me as having done the program because it's the program I most associate myself with having done because it's the one I enjoyed the most. It's fascinating because we've found that from several of the guests we've had on the show this season, that that's a similar page. I mean, when we spoke to Amber, I mean... She sort of had, had blocked it out and everything, but we got her on another one of our shows a couple of years ago and, and she had just wrote written a, a column about the fact of, hey, remember I was on Survivor at one point. And, and then, you know, speaking to someone like Kim Johnson, who, you know, kind of forms a very small part of her career, Wayne Gardner, I think we're the only podcast in the history of podcasts who not speak to him about his Grand Prix career. So it's, right. it's interesting because hey, where I was... Something Grand Prix, Wayne Gardner, what did you do? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, something like that. Um, but it's just, it's I, fascinating. I racing car driver, wasn't he? No, the, the bike's Grand Prix, same thing. Come on, you know. <laughs> but it's it's fascinating because, yeah, it's it's a season that we've enjoyed covering, um, you know, one that we're, we've thoroughly enjoyed talking about you and the entire cast. And it's one thing that we are really trying to, I guess, achieve with, with covering the older seasons is to bring them back out into the public, bring them back out, back out and say, let's just not ignore them. Because I, I'm just going to say this right now, David, we said this at the end of last episode that... You know, if you were to look at some of the greatest players in the history of Australian Survivor, your name should be up there and it should never be ignored like uh, your season and the season that preceded yours on Channel 9 should be. It's, it's, it's a travesty that Australian Survivor fans forget how well you and many other players from the first two seasons played the game. Oh, thank you. Now, David, before we actually start getting into talking about your time in Vanuatu, I guess for the listeners that might not be too familiar with you or familiar with what you did prior to, I guess, being on reality TV. Can you just give us a bit of a rundown, I guess, of what made you a celebrity? You know, how did you get to the point of being on a celebrity version of Survivor? Yeah, well, look, it's fair to say I've I've never and still don't consider myself a celebrity. Um, You know, like Matt Damon is a celebrity. Um, Brad Pitt is a celebrity. George Clooney are celebrities. Sadly, Sean Connery was a celebrity. Mm. What a great celebrity he was and a wonderful actor. Uh, so I've never seen myself as a celebrity. Um, I've always seen myself as a person who was in the public eye. Mm. Uh, so I, I'm not really comfortable with the attachment, uh, not that I'm concerned with you guys referring to me that way, but <laughs> I'm not actually comfortable with the attachment um, of the moniker of celebrity. Um I suppose in the sense of what was it, why I was in the public eye, I, I was the spin doctor of my generation, if I put it that way, which was in the late 90s, and that led me into a, a propagandist. I was the propagandist of my time, and that led me into a career ultimately to being a parliamentarian, 
and being an elected member of parliament. And so I had some level of notoriety and public attention and I was really quite publicly well known. Funnily enough, I was probably better known as a spin doctor in the late 90s than I was as a as a parliamentarian in the sort of early part of the 2000s, strangely enough. But yeah, that was it. So that was what made me publicly known, brought me to an attention factor that uh, caused them to ask me to be on the program. So when they do ask you to be on the program, you mentioned before that you initially were sort of advertised to it as being the mole. What point did they then say, no, actually, this is Survivor? And did that sort of uh, make you more interested? I mean, kind of when they're approaching you, sort of what was it that kind of whetted your appetite and then eventually made you say yes to doing it? Well, look, I know it's kind of sacrilege for me to put it this way, but the fact is that I didn't really ever watch any of these shows. So I was aware the mole existed and I, you know, I knew that I can't even think of the lady who was the the mole, whatever. You know, the lady who was actually the, the presenter, I think she used to be one of the, the, she was like the matron on the Young Doctors or something or other was how I had some recollection of her um, and I couldn't even have that wrong. So I just remember fleetingly seeing ads for the mole. Survivor, I'd never actually seen Survivor. I was obviously aware of Survivor, but these were not really shows that I watched. <sighs> Sorry about that. They were not really shows that I watched. So I wasn't familiar with how any of it was played or how any of it operated. I'd probably seen an hour in snippets of different Survivor shows at different times when I might have been flicking channels and all that sort of thing. So a lot of it didn't mean a great deal to me, apart from being aware that the shows existed, apart from being aware that Survivor was you know, extraordinarily popular um, and looked like fun. And I, I must kind of put it this way, because this is the way it actually is. It wasn't that I'm not interested in these shows. I'm not interested in watching as such. I've never been a watcher. I've never been an observer. I've always been a participant. And to this day, I can't be bothered watching sport or anything like like I played rugby union. I, I won national titles in sport, but I've always been a participant. I've never been much for watching. That changes these days because I love nothing more than watching my my own young kids run around at rugby and I'm yelling and screaming on the sidelines like I never ever thought I would as a spectator. So the shows are marvellous. The you know, Survivor is just such an extraordinary show, it really is. But it's certainly a lot more fun being involved than it is watching. What happened when they came to me and they told me it was the mole, it was obviously cover in the first instance. I don't recollect exactly how long it was between when they first made contact to when they ultimately um, told me it was Survivor. Uh, and I'm not sure what the time frame for them was on that, but I suppose it was not more than a matter of a couple of weeks. So was this your first reality show after giving up politics? I was actually still in, I was actually still a member of parliament at the time. Um, so, but yes, so it was my first reality reality show and I was still a member of parliament at the time when I did it. So, so how does that work then when you are a member of parliament to then going off and doing a reality show? I can't imagine that uh, some of your constituents and other people around that would be too happy that you're off to go and film a reality show rather than uh, do the job they elected you for. Well, we're allowed holidays. In fact, most people would say that parliamentarians are on holiday all the time. <laughs> so, yeah, it was yeah, it was four weeks in the jungle. I mean, school teachers get 12 weeks a year. Yeah. So, yeah, police officers probably get six, do you? Yeah, six, yeah. We do. So, you know, it was, for me, it was three or four weeks away. Um yeah, there was no reason to think terribly much of it particularly. Were you worried 
this being your first reality show and you're still in oh, politics. Sorry, I'm saying, keep in mind the parliament doesn't sit all the time. Mm. The parliament has whole months where they don't actually sit. So then it's just a matter of office work in between. Sorry, go ahead. Were you worried at the time that going on a reality show, um, especially, you know, with your background, like obviously you were in the headlines a lot with One Nation and, and Pauline Hanson and everything like that. Were you worried that they might try to exploit that with the editing and stuff? Was there ever that concern about this being your first reality show? There it's kind of, there's a, a blend of answers for that. The first thing is um, my naivety and my own um, comfort with regards to what I'm going to do and say. I was quite comfortable that I wouldn't do or say anything that would cause an issue because I'm relatively controlled in the way I approach things. By the same token, I was also naive in the sense as to how these things are done because I'd never done reality. I'd done lots of TV, you know, and I'd done, you know, very extensive interviews with, you know, 60 Minutes and a current affair and, you know, every conceivable current affair show on every channel. And, and so I'd done lots and lots of television, but always in, in political interviews. So I've, I've always been comfortable when it comes to being asked questions or answering questions and being on camera. So I, I was never concerned about how I might be portrayed. That changed over the years, and I wasn't concerned about how I was portrayed in Survivor. But over the years, of course, reality TV, um, I don't think Survivor has gone this way, but all other reality TV is now producer-driven Oh, and it's, yes. it's not reality at all. It's mm. a bunch of people being set up to do a whole range of things that are yeah. and are scripted. But the survival we did wasn't like that. It was it was pretty real, and you know, you got from the people pretty much what they, you know, what they were there to give of themselves. Whereas, I mean, in recent things that I've done in reality TV, you would have producers whispering things mm. to you. And you'd, there'd be microphones where, yeah, sorry, there'd be speakers where you'd be able to hear them quietly telling, go over to so and so and say this to so. And you're like, you know, you just sort of, you play ball with it all, but it's not reality TV. Ben and I have said it numerous times throughout covering the season that it's a credit to David Mason, you know, the executive producer of Celebrity Survivor and and, and the editors that, you know, they they didn't take that, I guess, what you call a, a the dirty path of trying to edit you to look like this bad guy. I think in the, obviously you were a great player of the game and instead of them trying to make you someone you're not, they, they actually showed you for you of, of being this great player. And I think, I think if you're playing survivor these days, they, when, when they pick cast members, they're looking at how they can, you know, for the audience, they're looking at how they can portray you and how they can edit you and all that. And they have different types of characters they want, you know, where, where they could have done that to you survivor. They could have, but, they, you know, they actually didn't do that. And, and, you know, you left the show, I guess anyone that would have watched it, if they had, you know, they might've gone into that show. Maybe if they had different political views, they, they might've thought, oh, David Oldfield, I don't like him. But I think by the end of the show, they would have said, Hey, this guy's actually a pretty good guy. Like you came across very, very well. Um, and, and that was a credit to, I guess, the editors and David Mason that, that they actually showed you for who you really are. I thought the whole crew generally, the, the various producers that we had and David Mason, you know, I thought they did a terrific job uh, right across the board. Uh, and, you know, I, you pretty much saw what was me and that mm. was, it was, there wasn't any setting people up to be particular villains or anything like that, which is something that I've been exposed to consistently um, ever since then in the later reality shows. 
yeah, the, in some cases, you know, you get picked, as you're saying, particularly because, okay, who are we going to have for a villain? Ah, let's get David Oldfield. He's the, you know, he's the villain from, you know, from Wardrobe. You know, absolutely. Yeah. That's him. So, yeah, it's, but the yeah, survival wasn't like that at all. I think also there was an element of, I was a bit surprising to them as yeah. well. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure that I was quite what they were expecting. I mean, in a positive sense, I'm not really sure what they're expecting, but I wasn't, I think, who they thought I was. So it kind of went from there. We know that each of the contestants were playing for a charity and you obviously all each paid a fee to playing the game. Now we're asking this each of the contestants. Dave, you don't have to answer it, of course, if you, you don't want to. But do you remember what your, your fee was that you were paid for playing? Uh, I remember exactly what it was, and from conversations that we've had off co- off camera, um, I gather that my fee was multiply quite a lot larger than some of the others, in some cases three times as much. So it's probably best if I don't pin down the precise amount, but I thought I was quite reasonably well paid at the time, and it was, you know, frankly, on a par with um, what I was paid even 10 years later. So it was you know, really quite good for the day. And I was surprised to find out that some of the others, I just thought we were all being paid the same. I don't remember actually ever discussing with anybody during the program as to who was getting paid what. I just presumed we all got the same. Right, so there's been a little bit of confusion throughout the season. And I think obviously it's it's 15 years ago. People have been, you know, a lot of these cast members of this season have been on a lot of TV shows since. Now, some are saying that it didn't matter where you placed, it was, you already had the same amount, the same figure that, you know, you signed on, your agent had obviously said, yep, this is what they're going to pay you. doesn't matter if you go out on day three or win it. Is that how you remember it? Or the longer you lasted in the show, would that mean your money would increase? Yeah, that's how it was for me. You know, there was a, if I recollect, there was a set figure that you were going to get regardless of how long you were there, but then a point cut in where if you were still there, you were getting so many thousands of dollars a day. And yeah. so I kept going from there. So now I, I, my figures continue to accumulate with length of time on camera. Yeah, and, and I think that that makes sense because I, I said this to Kim Johnson. Obviously, she was first out, so what, she lasted two days or three days. But, but um, you know, hers was one of the lower figures. But I said to her, well, what, what's the incentive to stay in? If you're going to get the same amount of lasting three days or 25 days, you may as well be like her and want to leave after three days if, if you're not really enjoying it and go home. You're still going to make the same amount of money. So what you're saying definitely makes sense that it gives some incentive to, to the celebrity, especially someone like Gabby, who clearly throughout the whole season said she didn't want to be there. But if it means lasting a couple more days is going to put an extra few thousand dollars each day in your pocket, well, it gives you something to, to want to go on to the next day. I don't. Yeah, exactly. Look, I, I don't remember what it was, but it, it was something like ten or twenty thousand dollars was the the guaranteed figure, and then, as I say, there was so many thousand dollars a day after that that added up to being quite, you know, very reasonable after a couple of weeks. And were you told if you win it, like, was were you told before the show started if you win this show, you're going to make this amount of money? Yeah, there was another hundred thousand dollars for the winner. Okay. Wow. Okay. And the so, charity, of I, course. Yeah, the charity got $100,000. So the charity got 5000 If you were the winner, your charity got $5,000. If you were the winner, you got $100,000 for your charity, plus you got your pay along the line, plus you got an extra $100,000 yeah. for winning. With your charity, just while we're on the, the topic of this, we usually sort of ask this towards more the end, but we're on the topic of it now. You chose uh, the Legacy Foundation for it. What was the reason, you know, Legacy had you had much association with them over the years and that's why you eventually chose them? 
I had done a little bit of fundraising for them in my own right, just as sort of small things in the past at Parliament House and luncheons and things like that. And my basically my whole family are, are, were in the military, uh, always in wars. We were never civilian soldiers, but uh, I'm the only male, you know, like going back um, that didn't fight in a war in my family and you know, my brother, my brother was in Vietnam. My you know, grandfather was in world war one. My grand, my father and uncle and great uncles were in world war two, um, all combat veterans. And so, yeah, there is an attachment for me, particularly for the military and had things been slightly different in my life, I would have been in the military myself. You mentioned that you had never really watched the show bits and pieces here and there when, when you realized it was survivor, when you were getting ready to go there, was there, any moment there where you try to catch up some other episodes or did any other sort of preparation, maybe some extra physical training, uh, you know, work on your cooking uh, that we'll talk about? I mean, kind of anything to prep yourself before you went out to Vanuatu? I think I did do a little bit of exercise, um, but, I mean, I didn't know there was a great deal of chance for me to change terribly much myself physically in the time that I had, um, and I wasn't all that disciplined about doing it. And I had planned on watching quite a lot of Survivor, but once again, you know, it was just the time frame of it didn't allow it. So I think I saw two episodes before I went, which was enough to give me some concept of how it was played. Whereas, excuse me, like Guy Leach, for example, you know, was just such an avid Survivor fan. He'd probably seen every episode of every series and, you know, knew it from front to back. You know, I was, you know, complete completely naive where it was concerned, but I saw probably just enough to have an understanding of it before we left. Did you know before going into it, did you know that like who else was going to be in the show or did, did you only find that out when you got on the plane? Yeah. My recollection is that we didn't know at all until we got to the airport and then not everybody who was going to be there was at the airport when I was going. I think we went you know, from different yeah. in some cases and we may have even gone slightly different times. I don't remember. But I think on the plane I was on, there was um, Wayne and Guy and there was me. And I'm not actually sure who else. There might have might been. might have been Kim, I think. Kim was, I think Kim tell, Kim told a story about her and, and, and Wayne uh, having a, a conversation on the plane over there. Yeah, could, Kim, well, then obviously Kim. And there might have been Elton, but I'm not sure. Did, did you know these people i mean i guess most people know the likes of a guy leach and a and a wayne gardner but i mean did you know who kim johnson was did, did you know who elton was and and if so had you dealt with any of them before sort of through anything that you were done in politics or met any of the contestants beforehand no I, I very briefly met guy i wouldn't say that i knew him but i very briefly met him because you know we both grew up on the northern beaches in sydney and we both sort of lived in the manly area and um yeah, you know, he had shops and things. He had his own sort of mobile phone shop at one stage there down on the beachfront. So I had bumped Guy Leach and I was very familiar with who he was in the sense of being an Ironman and being you know, a remarkably successful athlete. I was aware of him in that sense. I don't think I really knew anything about Wayne Gardner. I'd probably just in the news been aware that an Australian had won the World Motorcycle 500cc, I think it was, championship. And he may have won more than once, I don't know. So I'm vaguely aware that he was a world champion. Um, I, I think I may have known about Kim. I think she was going out with um, Tom, oh, Tom's surname. Williams. The, yeah, Tom the, Williams. I think she was going out with Tom Williams at the time. And I, I kind of knew Tom Williams 
just from TV bits and pieces. That was a shirtless dancing with the stars around yeah. then when that went viral. Yeah. So um, I was I was probably aware of Kim Johnson, uh, but that was you know that was about it. No Elton, none of the others I knew. I knew Gabrielle as the pleasure machine. Yeah. Because I'd I'd seen the the scenario that had taken place with um, I think it was Solomon Holmano. Or yeah. That's how I knew. That's how I knew it because I was. I'm a big rugby league fan, so that's at the time. Yeah, she was. She was. Well, she just I think finished with that Solomon Hamono. Yeah. Imogen and I had mutual friends um, in um, in Bessie Barker and uh, and Jeff Barker or Bessie Bardot and Jeff Barker, um, who you now live in America. So we had we had mutual friends, but I didn't really know Imogen. I may have bumped her somewhere down the line, but didn't really know her. I was aware of Amber. Um, I had no knowledge of Fiona or Nicole. Not even Jessica. Nicole. Didn't, yep. didn't remember from Home and Away. No, Bobby weren't a Home and Away I, fan growing up. <laughs> I know once again it's sacrilege, but I don't think I've ever seen a, a Home and Away show. <laughs> You're not missing out on much, let's be honest. Uh, I'm surprised you didn't know who Fiona was. Um, even I knew as a kid. I, I knew who Fiona She used to be, well, she used to do the talkback stuff with Stan Zamanik and. She was obviously a rock singer and all that, but uh, yeah, I, yeah, I've since only in recent times, like um, I think I don't quite know how I've seen this, but in recent times I have seen her performing on Hey Hey It's Saturday. Oh yeah, you yeah. might you might you might have seen that. I think we shared the clip of that on our. Is that on our same she's probably yeah, 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 yeah. Quite right. That's how I saw it. I saw it on Instagram from you guys. Yeah. I figure out how I had seen this, but now that's right. I saw it on Instagram. Um. So, but prior to that, no, I, I had no idea that she was a rock singer or any idea about her at all. So you must have been totally confused then when Ben Wynn turned up in day two wondering <laughs> who the hell this guy was. Well, yeah, he wasn't anybody I knew. He was a nice guy, Ben, though. Yeah. Was he? Was he really? What's, okay, like- <laughs> what's, your take, what's your take on Ben Wynn? Why was he there? Because this is something we haven't been able to to get to the bottom of. No, even David Mason couldn't. He, he, he said he thought he was someone that had applied for the mole one time and he liked him and got him on, but. We haven't been able to track him down. The guy's like a ghost. Um, but what, what's your take on him? Do you reckon it wasn't planned that for him to just come on and then get voted out straight away, or was that just just how it worked out? I think that's just how it worked out. I mean, he you know he was supposed to be the survivalist who was a um, who was a prize. You know, he mm. we actually won Ben, um, and so he was the muscle bound guy who was the jungle warfare expert and. And yeah, you win Ben and you win all sorts of knowledge that he has in regards to being able to take you through and find stuff that you step on that you think is weeds that are actually a zesty salad. (laughs) (laughs) Did did, did you learn anything from him? I've just realised where you with your zesty salad. Yeah, because you you, you had to keep feeding up Elton. Elton wanted his steak, so you're making up all the stew. He didn't give a shit about your salad. And he never cared about the salad. You were trying to tell him about the zesty salad. He didn't care at all about the salad. No, that's he's a real meat eater, the old Elton. But he loves did, the steak. Did, did Ben win? Like, did he? Did you learn anything from him with, with what you can cook uh, yeah, up? Yeah, I liked Ben. Yeah, no, I liked Ben. I thought he was a good guy. And of course, you know, the fact that he was in the military automatically yeah. made me like yeah. him because you know that's the way I feel about these things. But he, um, yeah, look, he he showed us what was wild rocket and uh, you know, a range of other things that were plant like or plant life. That was edible that the rest of us wouldn't have had any idea mm. it was anything but weeds and i've got a feeling that it was him who showed us 
about um, getting bamboo and chopping it and making toothbrushes mm. from uh, sprigs of bamboo. I think he was the person who showed us how to do that to have a chance of trying to still have teeth at the end of it all. <laughs> um, I mean, you picture we went a month without toothpaste. Yeah. Um, Three and a half weeks or without toothpaste. It seems like oh, a big deal, but no, it is a big deal as far as your dental hygiene is concerned. Um, and no toothbrushes, you know, these bamboo things that we've done with knives. So I'm pretty sure it was him who showed us that. So no, Ben was useful. The very interesting thing that I found about Ben was that he basically was a terrible swimmer. Yeah, he was extraordinarily, I mean, he was built like the proverbial, you know, brick shithouse. Um, But, yeah, he was a dreadful swimmer. And, of course, you'd have to put that down to the fact that he was so heavy. You know, he was so dense in the sense of um, volume uh, because he was all muscle. Of course, muscle is, you know, much heavier than fat without the volume. So when we went in the water, and this was particularly evident to me one day when we were going out and we were going to go spearing fish, and I got him to come and help me, you know, because I'm, very adept underwater and I got him to come with me and he was struggling to stay afloat. And I'm like, I can't believe this guy's in such amazing shape that he can barely swim. But the bottom line was that he seriously, he was so muscle bound that he was just as he was like a stone in the water. He really struggled to swim. He's like a stone in many other aspects too, David. I was going to ask, does the guy have any personality? Did he tell a joke? Did he crack a smile at any point out there? Because we didn't definitely didn't see it in the two episodes he was on. Well, look, you know, I was more interested in the fact that he was a superbly trained killer. Um, <laughs> that, was, that was where I was interested and it was in that sense that I admired him having been a member of the SAS and been in the Middle East and all those sorts of things. So I didn't need him to tell a joke. I, I could quite happily just, you know, smile while being in his presence. I just keep thinking about the fact that if you if you had been you know and gone instead of going to politics going into the military like you would have been this master tactician in the military coming up with all these plans. I mean, I think it's a, it was a loss for the for the defence force not to have you in there. Well, I don't, I don't know. It's I, I would never have pictured myself that way. I always always saw myself on the ground fighting. Um, mm. is, is the thing. Uh, I mean, I. I, I, frankly, I always wanted to join the U.S. Marines. And, and when I was a teenager, my family was you know, this close to moving to the United States. Mm. And so, you know, that for me was a dream as a, as a young person that almost came true um, in that sense. So, you yeah, know, I always saw myself as being in the infantry, quite frankly, um, I, which a lot of people you know, look down on, I suppose. Um, but I always saw myself as being on the ground fighting. Uh, but it's you know it's all just a, a pipe dream of now a person who's an old man. You know? <laughs> <laughs> when uh, when you heard the se- season was going to be shot in Vanuatu, had you, had you been to Vanuatu before, or was that was that exciting too that here you're going to be playing this uh, game I, in a in a, in a little Vanuatu. island country? I've been to Vanuatu thirteen times. <laughs> wow, <laughs> this was my fourteenth trip to Vanuatu. Oh wow, it was, it was nothing new where I was concerned as far as that was related. No, what had brought you there so many times? Well, I used to. Um, yeah, in my misspent youth, I was a diving, scuba diving instructor and, um, and I owned dive shops. And one of the things that I used to do was um, I would take people on diving tours yeah. and we would go to all over the Pacific. I mean, we went to lots of places. Um, but one of the particular places that we would go to very regularly was Vanuatu, mostly because in the northern island of Vanuatu, Espiritu Santo, there's this extraordinary shipwreck called the SS President Coolidge and it was a troop ship during World War II but it was a you know a luxury liner just prior to the war converted to a troop ship and it sank 
off one of the islands in um, up in the spiritual center off the mainland of that particular island and it's just it's the most accessible and probably one of the very best wreck dives in the world you've got this ship that's 654 feet long so you know look talking nearly 200 meters long and it's 81 feet wide so 24 meters wide uh, you know this massive was 33,000 tons that's a very 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 big ship had like 5,000 troops on board when it ran aground just before it sank. And so it sank everything intact. You know, it has um, all sorts of weaponry um, for defense. It has, you know, its holds were full of you know, various materials. I mean, back in the day, you know, when we were sort of diving in the, uh, in the early 80s, you know, there were cases of rifles and there were, you know, uh, vehicles and, you know, there were Thompson submachine guns, you know, lying around and, and all manner of ammunition in the ready load lockers for the guns that were actually on the on the ship. You know, it was an armoured troop ship as they were. So had two three-inch guns at the front and two three-inch guns at the back and a five-inch gun right on the stern and all the related ammunition to that. And it had, you know, heaps and heaps of anti-air, 20 millimetre all like anti-aircraft guns and, and um, multiple uh, double um, 50 calibre Browning machine guns and all these sorts of things all over it. Uh, and plus it had the aspects of being the fact that it was a luxury liner. So you could go inside and you had all these cabins and you had, you know, a post office and a swimming pool, which was still, still to this day, full of water. Funnily wow. Enough. Yeah. 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 Yep. Uh, <laughs> we'll, add, we'll add a laugh track in there later, David. Wasn't, just, the sw- wasn't yep. just the swimming pool that was full. Yep. 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 Um, so, <laughs> there was also, uh, you know, this marvelous statue of a lady with a unicorn and a, you know, a marble fireplace and spiral staircase and all these sorts of things. So you had all this amazing crossover of the war and everything left on the ship as it sank. Uh, plus the fact that it was a massively big ship, especially for its day, even today, it's still a big ship. Uh, and of course, it had everything that it had, had previously on it from a luxury liner point of view. And you'd wow. get in kitchens and, you know, you, you, like we used to really deeply penetrate the wreck, which can be dangerous in itself. And there's a couple of times when we got a bit trapped and um, some of it became a bit dicky and we probably nearly died a couple of times. But, you know, over the years, you know, we really got to know it really well. Ultimately, we got the plans, the actual deck plans for the ship. So we were actually you know, able to really follow where, you know, where we could go next and finding our ways in and out. And we even started diving it at night, uh, which in itself is then just a, an entirely new realm to actually be penetrating a shipwreck in, you know, quite deep down decks and corridors and, and staircases where the stairs, of course, have now all collapsed. So there's just a big hole that runs down with decks running off the sides. And the ship is on its side as well. So it's very disorienting, which itself is a challenge. When you start to then employ the darkness as well as the depth uh, and all of these things, you know, it's really very adventurous. Do you still dive today? Have you hung up the tank? I have. I've, I've hung up the tanks. I've hung up all the tanks and all the gear. And no, I haven't dived in, you know, not since 2000. It actually it, makes sense yeah. now that you've spent that much time in Vanuatu that when you got to the challenge with the Pigeon English that, that you were able to understand yes, what Dicko was saying to you. Was, was that a case that you just knew Pigeon English already? So you were the smart one when Dicko was thinking that he was going to hold one over your head, but you already knew what he was talking about. Well, as a, as a youth, I trained English 
pigeons. So it was quite a, a simple thing having had many English pigeons as pets that I would know pigeon English. <laughs> Is there anything you haven't done? <laughs> Honestly. I haven't had sex with a man. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the only thing that immediately comes to mind. <laughs> that you, that you well, know of. That well, you know of. It's the only thing hey. that, uh, well, they weren't men as far as I knew. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> These days, David, nothing nothing I do, surprises I just, me. These I just want days. to say right now that might be the best answer we've ever had yeah, on this show ever. Um, right yeah. now, David, you're one point uh-huh. in the David Oldfield column. Um, yep, that that that's an answer. That is that, brilliant. That's an answer. On I on the plane uh, or sort of when you landed in Vanuatu. I don't think there's anything wrong with having sex with a man. No, no, <laughs> just not for me. It's just not for you. It's it's not. You're not quite there yet. Who knows? Not yet. Yeah. I mean, I mean, <laughs> That's why I'm not in the vaguest sense. Uh, okay, so hang on. I'm going to scrap that question. Did you and Guy no. have sex? That yeah, is scrap it. the yeah, list. Scrap. Yep, scrap that question. Um, was there much? Was there any conversations with any of the players before you you got to play? Did you have a chance to have a simple sort of a glance, a, a g'day, how you doing? I mean, sort of any form of anything before you started playing the game? Yeah, well, certainly with Guy and Wayne. Um, at the airport and as we're going and Guy kind of clued us up, you know, with you know, different things that we should be careful with. And, you know, Guy was wanting to sort of pretty much form an alliance then and there, which we, you know, tend to agree to. I had no reason not to. And so we kind of formed a bit of a, well, we'll see what we can do to help each other out from the beginning, from the outset uh, before we got on the plane. And also with Imogen in the hotel when we got to uh, Vanuatu, where Imogen told me, I won't vote you out. That early, like straight away, before we started, yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, that which of course turned out to be a lot. Well, I was going to say, yeah, it didn't <laughs> exactly last that long we, for that we, one, but yeah, we have plenty to talk to you about that. But what about so on day one when you start the game? There's only nine people because obviously Justin and Gabby weren't on the boat, and 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 Ben Wynn wasn't in the game at that stage. So right from there, it looked like there was there was banter between you and Dicko. You know, there's that. I think when he says, "Yeah, guys over here, girls over there," and you sort of joking around, and you go to move into the girls, and he he sort of says a comment, and 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 it sort of continues throughout the show. But it's basically a two part question. I want to know what what you thought about the the girls and the guys team. But that, we'll talk about Dicko first, the banter, because at the start it looked like throughout the the initial episodes that he sort of almost didn't like you. Where at the end, you guys had this amazing banter between each other, which I think really makes the season. Well, Dicko's akin to being a green left heading towards mm. um, communism person. You know, I mean, his, his, his socio-political views are naive but also extreme left, whilst at the same time being like a lot of people in those circumstances, he's an extraordinary hypocrite in the sense that he's very capitalistically related as, as long as the paycheck is for him. So uh, I could understand how Dicko would have felt where I was concerned, you know, based on how people perceive me. But of course, you know, if you don't actually know me and, you know, we've never had those sorts of conversations, you take from elements of what it is that the media says about mm-hmm. me rather than what I've said about myself. Um, so there is always, uh, if you've got any concept of me, it's it's preconceived, not so much on what I've said, but on what has been said about me. Mm. And I've always taken issue with that situation. So I would have expected that Dicko 
had very much preconceived ideas of me being you know, some extreme right-wing nut, nut job, which, which I'm not. Um, so, yeah, I'm not surprised. I would have expected that you would have had some disdain for me from the outset. Do you think by the end of it, though, that you two sort of did? Because it, it almost got to the point where he, it seemed like he was your biggest fan by, by what, episode 10 when, when you went out. Like, it, it, it really did look by watching it that, that his opinion of you changed. Well, it must have been just through gameplay because I, we didn't really have any contact with Dicko. So mm. I didn't see Dicko apart from on set and um, at the rap party. That was it. I, I had no time spent with Dicko that wasn't actually on camera. So if he had a change of view or a variation of view from what he'd started with, it must have been as consequence of developing through what he was seeing. It wasn't from talking to him. Later on, you obviously were on first contact with him. Did, did you guys talk much about Survivor when you were on, on first contact, sort of reminisce about the good old days of when you were on Survivor together? A little bit, a little bit, um, but not a lot because, you know, once again, where Dicko is concerned, you've got to, you know, Dicko's done lots of these things. You know, he, mm. was, he was the host on, on various failed television shows and, so, and, and failed radio shows and those sorts of things. So... But he, and of course, and also he had that extraordinary success with Australian Idol, mm. um, and so you know, Dicko has done a lot of these things, and I wasn't suggesting Survival was a failure. In fact, Survivor I thought was quite a substantial success. And in fact, when you look at the numbers today of the ratings for Australian Survivor, uh, any of the television channels would be overwhelmed to have those sorts of numbers watching any of their programs these days. And I think this the peak of the show was about 1.4 million. I think the lowest number we had was about 960 or 970,000. Mm. They'd kill uh, for that now. I'm yeah, sure. Survivor. Yeah. A lot of prime time shows these days struggle to get half a million. Yeah. 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 I think, I think Australian Survivor gets sort of in the mid 600. Sometimes yeah. a couple episodes might get to 700,000. Yeah. So uh, Celebrity Survivor, as it was from Channel 7, um, was only you know, considered moderately successful at the time. But in comparison to what's on television these days and what people watch with all of the, all of the different choices that they have, you know, they'd kill for the sorts of ratings that they had from Celebrity Survivor. But I digress. Dick, I was saying Dicko has done so many of these things and been engaged so much in the media since the days of when he you know, left being a recording um, company executive to be on Australian Idol, that, you know, there wasn't a lot for us to say about Survivor particularly, but we certainly discussed it, yeah, because it was a great memory of mine. But see, once again, you know, I, I harp back to the scenario that I didn't really talk to Dicko on Survivor. So all we really had were on-camera shared experiences. It wasn't like we'd hung out at the bar, hey, remember that time at Layla Gone? There's a couple of local girls. You don't need to go. I'm glad you said local girls and not local boys. Dicko having enough to drink, you know. Who knows? But there's there wasn't any of that. So yeah. But I know I have wonderful memories myself of of Survivor. Not as I say as much of Dicko because we we just didn't socialise except seeing him on camera. Now, David, do you play golf? Because his last we we hadn't seen Dicko for quite a few years, and he popped up on the show Holy Moly in the last few months, where he, he was dressed in a pirate suit. I think he even said on there that it was his return, his big return to television. Um, 
So I don't know if you if you if you're a bit of a, 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 a like the mini putt 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 golf, you could get yourself on holy moly, and you might uh, be able to reminisce with him again. Yeah, you know, I, was, I have no idea. Obviously, holy moly is some kind of golf game. Yeah, it's like a putt putt show, and you're yeah. not missing much. You're not missing. But like much. a lot of people who will probably see this, I don't even watch freeware television anymore. Yeah. So no, I just don't see any of these things. I mean, with Netflix and and Prime and. You know, even the old DVD collection and YouTube. Oh, I've got the amazing stuff on YouTube. Whoever, I mean, who really yeah. And podcasts, all the great podcasts out there that you got to yeah, listen to, including this one. Oh, don't, don't, don't worry, David. I don't watch Holy Moly either, but it was on the TV and I must have gone to change the channel. I looked up and I'm like, is that Dicko? Because there's, there's this guy in a pirate suit. And I'm like, that's Dicko. So, yeah, so that's that's where he was last time we saw him on TV. But I quite, I quite like Dicko in a sense. I find, I find Dicko... The issue that I have with Dicko is that he's an enormous hypocrite. And that is always an issue with me for people in so many ways. Um, but, you know, to sit down and sort of, you know, I have had the chance since Survivor to sit down and have a drink here and there with Dicko. And I quite like um, banter with Dicko. And, you know, Dicko is an intelligent man, um, somewhat misled, misguided but an intelligent man nonetheless um, and trapped by an ideology that creates you know, hypocrisy beyond belief. But, uh, you know, I, I do actually like him, though it even seems in the course of this conversation I'm finding all sorts of reasons not to. It's funny because I think Dicko would have been under a lot of pressure when he when he, he came to Channel 7 and obviously they, they signed him up to, to host, um, you know, Australian Celebrity Survivor because they... they, they pulled him over. They obviously, we've learned from David Mason, they sort of didn't really have a show for him. They're like, well, here, you're going to, you're going to host Survivor. And he probably looking back now, you, you think he might've been a bit of an odd choice at the time because he's not, he's not a physical guy. He's not the sort of guy you look at and think, oh yeah, he's, he's, he could rough it out in the jungle himself, you know, but, but I think in the end being a celebrity version and, and it, I guess there's that argument too, where he was probably the biggest celebrity on your season, yet he's the host. He's not actually playing. But I think in the end, he actually did a pretty good job. We've, we've become pretty big fans of Dicko as the host of Celebrity Survivor. I think that, um, I think Dicko is always let down by his accent, to be quite mm. frank. I think it's, it's, it's very difficult to be a presenter um, without a full grasp of the English language. And I'm not really quite sure what language Dicko speaks, but I guess he speaks English because he's English. But no, I, I've always, a lot of, sometimes what he says is quite difficult to, to understand because of the thickness of his accent. It has diminished a little bit over time, but no, I thought he did a good job on um, Survivor because it was all a bit of a fun thing. But at the same time, he was um, fairly quick-witted and he was able to, you know, off the cuff, um, hit some good, you know, laughing points, and uh, you know, I enjoyed him being the host of the program while we were doing it. Well, I, he, he definitely speaks a little bit of Bislama because he, he actually <laughs> does that throughout this season. He, he talks a little bit of Bislama. He probably picked it up in a bar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Matt sort of alluded to before about thoughts on, on the boat, the, the girls and the guys. Obviously, Kakula starts off uh, mainly guys, and then obviously Gab joins it. You know, looking back sort of on those early days, was that something that you think helped you, kind of being around the guys and then sort of having Gab? Would you prefer to have a few more of the girls around you at, at that point? Kind of how was that working out for you early on in the game? 
look, there was always going to be a bit of a struggle with the girls because the girls, many of the girls are not all that physical. Um, and, you know, if they'd been, you know, the Australian women's netball team or, or Australian women's cricket team or, or Australian female athletes of some kind, that would have been entirely different. But obviously you had Fiona Horn, who was uh, fairly fit and mm. able to grasp whatever was thrown at her. But, you know, then you had Imogen who was like throwing up within 24 hours and looked like she was going to die. Um, Nicole was, you know, not very physical at all. And, you know, um, Amber also was, you know, very much, well, I mean, you know, she's a princess's sidekick. You know, she's not, she's not somebody you'd want in the post-apocalyptic world. <laughs> Um, most of these, uh, most of the girls would have been eaten and not in a good way um, in sort of, you know, within 48 hours of anything realistically taking place. The exception potentially would have been Kim Johnson, who was extraordinarily fit, but hated it so much that mm. she wanted to get off the show. Um, but I'm sure she could have gone forward and done well because she was very fit and agile and, you know, an extraordinarily uh, capable young woman. Um, Fiona the same in the sense that, you know, Fiona was also very, very fit and um, was marvellous in swimming challenges because she had those big balloons. The It's just, but the other girls were kind of, um, you know, they were bikini model actress fodder. So, I mean, you mentioned obviously having had those chats with, with Wayne sort of beforehand and kind of the conversation with Imogen, but like when you were on the beach, was there, you know, the bond with Elton, was that formed sort of early on, you know, was there much talk with Wayne kind of, you know, do you remember sort of any of those earlier conversations that were happening in game? Look, you get, um, there was just a level of, of understood cooperation because, you know, Wayne and, uh, and Guy and I had chatted, you know, as I say at the airport and, you know, so we kind of buddied up in that sense. Um, you know, Wayne, was always Wayne one of those people who believes his own press statements, um, you know, and so, and Wayne ultimately came unstuck as a consequence of that, as you know, because he, he started sort of, you know, boss Gabby around and, and, you know, started to treat her like she was an idiot. Um, and so even if she was, that probably wasn't the best approach in that sense, because, you know, she had a, an equal vote to him. So, it's, yeah, Wayne sort of undid himself a bit. And I, I'm not sure that Wayne was ever the sort of person that I would necessarily get along with generally. Um, I like Guy. And in fact, Guy only, Guy rang me a couple of uh, couple of weeks ago. Um, I think he must have done something with you guys. Did he do something with you guys a couple of weeks ago? He, uh, well, I mean, we've tagged him a lot on social media. He did um, the the Survivor Hall of Fame, Australian Survivor Hall of Fame we did last year, sort of did a little bit with that. Um, so, yeah, um, I, I think just with the social media stuff we've done with tagging you guys, a lot of you have sort of uh, had that, I think, brought out a lot. You know, Imogen is sort of talking about it a little bit more as well. And, uh, you know, Kim obviously talked about Amber. So, Fiona, yeah, so maybe we've just opened this can of worms for you all, David, to forget you'll start talking again 15 years later. Must, must have been something you did with David Mason then. Something prompted him to give me a call. I hadn't spoken to him for a few years. But I, as soon as I saw his number, I knew it was him because I just have a bit of a thing for numbers. And um, he, um, so, yeah, and I always liked Guy and I always had a you know, huge level of respect for Guy 
you know, as an athlete and, you know, as a, an extraordinarily capable athletic man, always had a great deal of respect for him and still still do to this day. Um, Elton also in that, you know, I love the game of rugby union. My children both play rugby union and I played rugby union, but obviously nothing like the sort of level of um, capacity that Elton has. And, you know, so I, I respected Elton. I thought Elton was a really nice young man because bear in mind, I was also the oldest contestant mm. in that mm. series. Yeah. But, you know, to me, I mean, I was old enough to be Elton's father. And, you know, I, so I really, I respected and really liked Elton. I thought he was a really likable, nice young man. And I don't know. So we got along straight away. Um, yeah. Maybe he saw me as being a bit older and, you know, maybe being a bit helpful in that sense. I don't know. Was Elton your plan to like that? If you're going to get to the final two, it would be you and Elton. Is that sort of your plan after maybe a week in the game? I don't know that we actually had a plan like that. Um, the only plan that we really had that was that the boys were going to try and stick together as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And they broke us up and put us in with the girls yeah. and that sort of thing. And, and so those things changed to a degree, but there was no great strategy going forward from my point of view as to, well, if I get in the final two, it's not something that I, uh, this is perhaps going to seem strange, but I, I tend not to plan too strongly for that which may not occur. Because keep in mind that these things are very fluid. And without certain completely uncontrollable factors taking place, none of it finishes the way that it did. Mm. And you, know, you pull out, you know, the most what seems like the most minute detail of something that took place, and the whole end game changes. Yeah. Uh, and you know, if I go for an example of that, the first person who should have been off the show was Imogen, mm-hmm. and the only reason Imogen didn't go was because you know Kim Johnston was begging to go home. So whereas they were going to get rid of Imogen the very first elimination, um, Kim said, no, no, please, I can't stand it. I want to go home. Send me home, send me home, send me home. And that saved Imogen. So it saved Imogen for another day and Imogen, of course, kept going. Now, if Imogen had been eliminated, which would have been the appropriate thing, first, first elimination, well, Imogen wouldn't have been there at the point to approach me in the darkness of the night and say, Let's get rid of, you know, she wouldn't have been there to do that. She wouldn't have buddied up with Nicole. Them as a couple of um, really quite weak people made themselves stronger by being, of course, a twosome. And societally and historically, that's how weak people make themselves strong, by banding together. And so none of that would have happened if indeed Kim Johnson hadn't hated the show so much and hated being there so much that she begged to go home. Imogen would have gone home, and goodness knows what would have happened from then on because Imogen herself became such a major factor behind the scenes in how and when people became eliminated. She wouldn't have Queen been Imogen. Imogen. Queen Imogen, David. That's what we refer to her on this show, Queen Imogen. She'd just, probably just... rather be a princess, I would think. <laughs> well, I mean, elevated as 15 years. I'm sure she would get to Queen of that. It's, it's so fascinating, though, to hear you sort of say that and, and going back to when you were saying about how you'd never seen the show because... One thing I think we get from watching it is that I think it would be the opposite. I think you knew everything. You were in the guy level of having watched this show so much. You were playing this, you were playing that because it just seems so fluid. It seems so natural to you to kind of, you know, the ability that you had to be able to live up to this master tactician label that you sort of got out there and the puppet master. I mean, do you put that down to just your profession as a politician that you've got to be sort of very 
you know, well-spoken, capable of reading people, kind of, you know, doing that sort of things? I mean, is it just a natural ability that you feel you have to be able to uh, progress in the way that you did through the game? It's certainly going to be more likely geared towards that than being familiar with the game because I wasn't familiar with the game at all. So, I mean, Survivor, as far as I'm concerned, Survivor is just really life um, and the game of life, if we put it that way, in the sense of the ugliness of politics and propaganda and the circles that I'd you know, previously moved in, perhaps you know, placed me in a good sense to understand psychologically how other people were placed and where they would fit in or not fit in and how I needed to fit in with them to get along under certain circumstances. By the same token, I was largely just really being myself. I probably tweaked a few things here and there um, but in many respects, I just tried to stay off people's radar, not not run too fast, not swim too fast, not do anything too smart, unless I absolutely, really seriously had to. You were getting called all these names, you know, the, these labelled the puppet master, you know, the, the all these great names. I mean, at what point do you, I mean... It must, you, your head must start to swell when, when, when they're giving you such compliments. Like if you're getting called the master tactician, the puppet master, I mean, deep down you must be thinking, I'm playing this game pretty well. Like to be getting labelled with these sort of, because no one else is getting labelled the puppet master or the master tactician. Yeah, so, well, that's where I suppose I'm a bit different. I, I don't actually think all that highly of myself particularly. I wouldn't say I have low self-esteem, but um, I, I don't, get a swelled head about things that I do. Um, I always judge everything in the factors of how it comes about without automatically entertaining the notion that it's all as a consequence of my phenomenal ability. Uh, it's like what I just said about the Imogen scenario. I mean, I finished up where I was, or I wouldn't have finished up where I was, quite likely, if the simple factor of Imogen going home first rather than mm -hmm. him hadn't taken place. So, you know, I'm, I'm not a person who is overwhelmed with a sense of my own significance. I'm really, I'm really not. So when they were saying things like that, I was sort of like, you know, I wasn't embarrassed, but I thought, like, this is just all part of the course. It's all part of the game. It's all part of what we're sort of showing for, you know, the audience and that sort of stuff. I, I never really thought terribly much of it. I never suspected that they actually really thought that. In fact, towards the end, you know, Guy told me that, um, Guy told, it was interesting, when Guy rang the other day, or a couple of weeks back now, he said he didn't really, until now, fully understand why I was so angry at the time mm. with Imogen and Nicole. But he really now, 15 years later, fully gets it. And... You know, it's it's just funny how all of these things sort of fall into place or not. And you know, you can you know, I I never I never create something that hasn't happened. You know, I, I never I never BS about something uh, because it's too easy to have it all come undone by the actions of others. So you're, you're better off always um, using what's true in your favour rather than just making something up because so many things can fall apart as a consequence of things that you're just not responsible for at all. So, yeah, you can think you're in control. It's a big mistake to think you're fully in control because you're not fully in control of what other people do.
Which it's so fascinating in watching you throughout the game, though, because ultimately when you get voted out, you know, you've got Justin Melvin and all that saying that you're the one pulling the strings, doing all this sort of stuff. But to me, it almost just seemed like that was the point when people actually realised that because when when the swap came and, and kind of things were happening there, you seemed to always be in the thick of the action, the, the decisions, and even in the merge, you sort of, even when you were outnumbered and, and seemingly on the chopping block, you still seemed to have a, a, a voice in what was going on. So it just... It's such a unique season, season two of Australian Survivor, because, you know, we, we said this last week, you came out of that season, I would argue, the best player on that season. And yet, for a large portion of the season, everybody didn't seem to see what you were doing, and even you almost didn't seem to see what you were doing, clearly based on what you're, you're telling us today. Well, no, I wouldn't say I didn't see what I was doing. Um, you know, I, I took every opportunity here and there to manipulate everything that I possibly could at every level. I did that not because I know how to play the game of Survivor, but just because I suppose I am a survivor in many respects. You know, I'm a, I'm a survivor in many respects in life rather than a television show. And, and for me, um, Survivor was just life. Uh, that's how I saw it. And I was surrounded by people with whom in that group I had to survive for a certain purpose. In this case, it was to keep going forward in the game. So, no, look, I manipulated everything that I possibly could everywhere down the line. But at the end of the day, and this is what I started to get onto, and then I went off on another tangent myself just a few seconds ago. Um, it was Guy who at the time said to me, um, these girls are afraid of you. And I said, well, what do you mean they're afraid of me? Because I don't know whether this has ever come out at any stage, but Guy and um, Justin tried to get me to join them to get rid of the girls when the two of them came back into the game. And I wouldn't do it because I'd done a deal with the girls and that was it. And they told me a whole range of things about what the girls were planning that to me couldn't, I mean, I was suspicious, but it didn't make any sense. Now, little did I know they were morons. Um, I, I really, uh, I, uh, it just didn't occur to me that they could be so stupid as to do what I was being told they were going to do. So I didn't fall for it, whereas I should have probably fallen for it. But I didn't side with Guy and Justin because I'd done a deal with the girls. And I didn't stay with that deal because I thought they would stay with that deal for the same reason. I thought they would stay with the deal because it was the smart thing to do. It didn't occur to me they could possibly be so stupid as to do what they did. And just and sorry, um, guy explained to me that they were frightened of me. I said, well, "What do you mean they're frightened of me?" I said, "They think you're too smart. They think that you know too much about what's going on. That you." I said, "What are you talking about?" And of course, now I think back on it, or I think back on it then. You know, I had the conversation with Imogen and Nicole, and there was just the three of us there. And I would say, "Right, I, I, I don't know if I really don't recollect if much of any of this actually ever made it to camera." But I sat down, or, or you know, probably got cut, but. I sat down with the girls and said, look, this is how it is. This is the three of us. And they said, yes. I said, there's one or two people coming back in. I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't know if it's going to be one. I don't know if it's going to be two. It won't be more than two. But I don't know who they're going to be, whether they're going to be people who have already been here or whether they're going to be new people we haven't seen yet. But there's one, possibly two people coming back in and this is going to expand and go on. And they were both, but that's not fair. And I was like, oh, well, I'm sorry, but which part of this from day one did you think was fair? You know, I was, I was sort of gobsmacked. <laughs> that's, not, that's not fair, you know. Um, and they said, anyway, 
how do you know? How do you know? I said, well, because, you know, I, don't, I mean, I knew perfectly at the time. I don't recollect particularly now, sort of 15 years later, but I said, well, you know, this is day 19 or day 20 or whatever it is. And um, there's, you know, we're on the island for X number of days. So there's, you know, there's six days left. And, you know, the challenges have been challenge reward, challenge reward, two day, you know, program. And there's just simply not enough of us to get us through to the end of where the show goes. And they both looked at me completely blankly for what seemed like a lifetime. And suddenly one of them said, how do you know what day it is? <laughs> oh, wow. Like, well, it's, you know, whatever it was, I said, it's Tuesday. Well, and this is you know, week three and we've been here X number of days. And, and once again, there was this silence and how do you know what day it is? And I'm like, because I've been counting <laughs> and counting the days. I, I've yeah. The, the sequence of what happens. Yeah. How do you know how many days are left? I said, well, I know how many days are left because I know what day it is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I just, that, it never occurred to me that they were that out of touch with everything. Um, and now it kind of more makes sense. So apparently that conversation I had with them frightened them to such a degree that they decided they had to get rid of me. I was the danger. And wow. I was the danger. They had two guys that had just had a week, you know, refreshing themselves who were both younger than me, both fitter than me, um, coming back. And, you know, and they came back. I was never the danger. Their worst case scenario was one of them finishing with me. And their more likely scenario was us eliminating Guy, eliminating Guy, um, Justin and them excuse me, then eliminating me and the two of them being at the finish. That would have been a fairly straightforward thing for them to create um, with my help as a third vote right in the first thing. And I said, you know, when these people come back, whether there's one or there's two, we stay together as three. There's not going to be more than two. Three always outvotes two. Whoever gets the immunity challenge, it can't be both of them. So we get rid of that person. And then there's the three of us trying to get the next immunity challenge. Yeah, that's a three to one odd that one of us will get it and then we vote out the next person. Then, girls, we're back to you, two, and me, which is the original last three, and do what you like from there. It's all good. And if I finish up going out as being you know, running third, well, you know, I completely understand. That was the conversation I had with them. And apparently that conversation was the nail in my own coffin. Who, who would ever think that simply by counting the days and knowing what day it is, that can cost you your place in Survivor. So anyone that's listening to this that might be lucky enough to go on and play Survivor, never let people know what day it is because they might just go and vote you out. Before. <laughs> Pretty much. You know, and, and, and that was it. I just, um, because I fully comprehended how long we'd been there, how long we were going to be there, where we were in the game, the fact that people were going to be coming back in because there weren't enough days, and this is how it was all going to work. It has to unfold this way. It doesn't make sense. And I actually said to them, what do you think? They're just going to film us laying around on the beach for a couple of days. <laughs> Yeah, I, mean, I just thought it was going to turn into a cooking show, David oh, Oldfield's cooking show. Yeah, yeah, it was just, and yeah, that was the fact that I understood everything that was happening and then worse, that it came true, exactly what I said was going to happen did happen. That was the nail in my coffin. I was too dangerous. They had to get rid of me. And through all of that, they still couldn't work out. There was then two against two. I mean, why would you do that to yourselves? It just, you know, three always outvotes two. <laughs> While we're on the topic of, of that twist in the game where, where Guy Leach and 
Justin Melvey come back. What are your thoughts about that? Do you, th- I mean, I know Survivor's not fair. I mean, even current day Survivor, it, it's not a fair game. It's not, it's certainly there's no one can argue with that these days. It was probably a little bit fairer back when you played it. It's definitely not fair now. But what's your thoughts on that? I mean, do you think they should have done it a bit earlier instead of like on day 19 of a 25 day game? I don't know. Uh, because, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not writing the show. I don't know what it is they're particularly trying to achieve. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, I don't feel qualified to sort of jump at that particularly. Um, should they have introduced two completely new people? I suppose, you know, that could have looked you know, much worse than bringing back people that had already been eliminated because at least they'd been through some of it rather yeah. than potentially just arriving fresh, never having been seen before and suddenly you're in the box seat to potentially win. So, Maybe it would have been better to just not bring anybody back and start with enough contestants in the first place yes. to um, not have it happen, not need it to happen. David talked a little bit about that in his interview and kind of he he says in hindsight he kind of regrets it and wish he had done it a, a little bit um, differently. I'd like to just quickly, you talk about sort of that conversation with Imogen and Nicole. Back yeah. when sort of you and Elton were the ones outnumbered on the merge there was that conversation where you had with Imogen at that point like hey Elton and I Imogen and Nicole like this is a is a foursome there was that kind of the first real strategic talk you had had with Imogen did you have other strategic strategic talks with her on Moso after of the swap because it seemed like you two had almost like a hidden alliance always in the background that kind of didn't really come into fruition until you made that decision to take out Gabby rather than forcing a tie to take out Nicole? Um, yeah. Well, look, there was an underlying feeling that I had. Um, I, I mean, I, to a degree, will fundamentally to a degree, will fundamentally trust a person based on what they say to me and and what I may know about them. You know, I mean, it's a sad thing that you have to treat a lot of people these days with a very large element of distrust. And to some people watching, that will seem awful and to others it will seem naive that I would even say that. But, you know, I think we all, uh, people generally like the idea of being able to trust people. And somewhere down the line, you're going to have to trust people at least to a degree. Now, Imogen and I had had the conversation. I didn't know anything about Imogen at the time, but we had mutual friends and she had, without me asking, had offered before we even got into the game while we're still in the hotel before we left the first day that she would not vote me out. And this was in theory on the basis because we both were very good friends with a mutual couple. Um, So... You know, I had some view that I could potentially have some trust in Imogen. That was bolstered by the fact that, you know, I saw Imogen as being physically weak. And so she needed to build, you know, more around her to go further. So alliances were in her interests. So you get a combination of mutual friends. She had offered this in the first place and she needs to do something with me in many respects as much as we need to do it with her. So, you know, there's a, a mutual profit in this. So, I mean, that caused me to be able to feel that I could talk to them. I actually put more belief in Nicole than Imogen. 
I thought Nicole was actually genuinely more trustworthy. But at the same time, Nicole was, you know, ultimately and quite clearly uh, throughout the game, I think, was was dominated by Imogen. So she tended to, you know, it was more Imogen who was doing the thinking for the two of them. Nicole was sort of really just sort of going along. Which, just on that, I mentioned recently one of our recaps with Nicole. I, I said, you know, and you can sort of either back this up or shut me down on my opinion, that Nicole at one point seemed like the most dangerous person in the game because she seemed so likeable. She seemed so liked. You know, people seemingly weren't looking at her as a threat and challenges and everything along those lines. I mean, was she considered that way, that if she got to the end, she could be very dangerous to win because there really wasn't anything that seemed negative you could say about Nicole? Um. Yeah, look, there was no one that I was aware of was ever concerned about Nicole and Imogen. You know, they were seen as fillers. They were not seen as being um, in any way uh, a threat in any challenge. Uh, I mean, neither of them were going to outswim or outrun anybody. I mean, that's just a physical fact. It's just, you know, the way it is. Um, you know, if you think about you know, the most dominant challenge that stays in my mind that Imogen won was finding a key in the sand. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, I mean, anyone could do it. That was when you were looking for divine intervention, the, according the, to Dicko, when yeah. you were just kind of doing that weird little thing on top of the sand. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've got to try and work out, you know, you need to find this thing in a hurry. How are you going to do this? If, you, if you're going to, you know, if you, if you want to find it absolutely, you've got all the time in the world, you can do it very systematically. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you can dig up the whole area, you know, in a, in a system like a grid. But how Did you, you ever find it? Did you ever find that key? I don't think I ever found a key. No, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. Um, but I don't remember. But the point that I'm making, of course, that finding a key in the sand is just, you know, like pulling an ace out of a deck of cards. Mm. Yeah. You know, it's, there's, it's not exactly a skill. Um, so... Neither Imogen nor Nicole were ever seen by anybody as being any great threat. But in the sense of because they were not seen as any great threat, um, they could just sort of keep on creeping forward. And to a degree, I mean, that's what I was doing myself. As I said to you a little bit earlier, you know, I, I made a point of never running as fast as I could run, never swimming as fast as I could swim, never diving as deep as I could dive, never you know, never doing anything that suggested that I was, you know, maybe more physical than a middle-aged guy who was just kind of, you know, okay. Because, you still walked away with three immunities, David. Yeah, well, I, I had to. I mean, I had to. I only, ever, I only ever really tried when I was, you know, in trouble. And uh, particularly that last immunity where I, you know, thram, swam the three lengths and let Lisa only did the one. You know, if I had not won that, then I would have been straight out. So, you know, I, I had to sort of do something then. So, and the puzzle challenge to a degree as well. When I mean, the puzzle challenge probably was, you know, my own ego in that, you know, I, I didn't want to seem like a dummy that couldn't remember something. So, you know, I thought it was necessary to win that. But at the same time, I didn't see that as being giving too much away because, you know, I was mostly dealing with people who were, you know, I wasn't dealing with anybody. There were no Einsteins in the group. You know, so I wasn't sort of dealing with anybody with you know, any vast intellectual capacity. It's, so no one yes. was going to be too worried about the fact that I'd done the puzzle. You know, It's so fascinating to hear that about Nicole and Imogen because 
when it gets to the final four and you've got that opportunity to break them up uh, by tying it up, you know, going with gabs, you know, to me, and like, as you were just saying there before, you were talking, you had worked out the fact that there was going to be people coming back because of the days. That seemed, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that you were playing the long game at that point. The smart thing maybe would be if you only had a couple of days left, of course you break up Nicole and, and Imogen because you need to break up a power couple. But having worked out that there have to be people coming back in the game, you cyber them, you've saved their lives, you've got a, a, an alliance of three versus two. Was that about the long game? Did you legitimately think about breaking them up at that point, but it was more about the long game for you at that point? Yes, yes, there was no question that by the time we got to that point, and you know, I was never of the view as to what point I may or may not get to. It was very much a daily struggle. And I think it's a mistake to be planning too far ahead with all of the things that can be undermined all the way along the line. You, know, you, can, you can focus on what may be and the various alternatives to you know, what needs to happen if things go amiss on what is otherwise a straight path, but yes, by the time we got to where there was Nicole and Gabby and um, Imogen and me, by the time we got to that point, it was, as far as I was concerned, the wiser thing to do was to go with Nicole and Imogen to save Nicole, which was Imogen. Imogen and Nicole, of course, mostly worried about one of them being voted off. So I was endearing myself to them. At the same time, um, I wouldn't have trusted Gabby as far as I could throw her and in the old way that things would be said. Um, so I didn't particularly overly trust any of them, but I placed a little bit more trust in the circumstances of doing them a favour and keeping that couple in than keeping Gabby in and breaking it up. Because but quite frankly, I think if I had broken it up and got rid of Nicole, Gabby and, and Imogen would have ganged up together. And so I then would have had a couple who were posed against me rather than a couple who were thankful that I did what I did. I'm quite certain that would have happened because the girls were playing this girl power. I thought it was with the Spice Girls there at one stage. They were playing this girl power thing. Uh, I don't know if I don't know if any of this actually made it to made it to the series, but you had Gabby and um, you had Gabby and Imogen and Nicole sort of sitting around saying, hey, wouldn't this be great if a girl won? Hey, you know, a girl could win. A girl could win. It was like, you know, it was like a, the Me Too movement of the year 2006. Yeah, you know, it was like, wouldn't this be great? It was like there was some social statement was going to be made if a girl won. And it could be one of us. We'll all be together. It's girl power, girl power. They, really, they were like that. And I'm like, oh, Jesus, this isn't much good. I mean... <laughs> They're focused on, they don't seem to understand that they're focused on gender politics in the game of Survivor. And, um, but what it really was, was three people who in many respects were fundamentally weak, making themselves feel better and finding a common denominator, which was their gender. Um, I was never going to fit into that quite clearly. You know, I was immediately the enemy. Once they, once they decided that they were three girls and that's what they were first and foremost, then I was on the outer immediately. I was dead and gone. So I had to win that challenge. That was the first thing. Um, then the second thing was, okay, yes, longer scenario. Um, I can probably find more trust in doing the right thing for Nicole and Imogen than I can siding with Gabby and getting rid of Nicole because all that will happen is that the girl power will just be two instead of three, but they'll both be against me. While we're on a topic of trust, a big issue 
in your season was the Justin Melbury, Justin Melby, Melby bribery, scan, uh, bribery scandal. What it looked like at Tribal when that all got brought up that you had some involvement of telling Ambus, uh, sorry, uh, Imogen some information. What can you tell us about what actually went down? Because none of it really got shown, or none of it got shown on camera. All of a sudden, the audience we're watching this episode, and then it gets to Tribal and. And Imogen is bringing up all all this bribery scandal issue with Justin, and and they're looking at you, and you're saying, "Well, I haven't told you a lie. Everything I've said is true." But they don't really explain it, and then it just sort of disappears. And then a couple of episodes later, Justin's back in. What actually happened? Well, my recollection was that it was all coming from Amber. Uh, sorry, not from Amber, from Imogen. Um, my understanding of it was that, you know, you had the with the scenario there for a while where Justin was over with the girls. So there was like, a, and Justin was, you know, like you know, the Sultan with a harem in many respects. And he was sort of, you know, very buddy, buddy with Fiona. So they were like um, king and queen of, of the, of the girl team. And Justin somehow had them thinking, I, I really don't understand the mechanics of how all this took place, but somehow Justin had them thinking that he should win. Mm. I don't know how anyone gets anybody sort of thinking that, but Justin had them genuinely thinking he could win. And I think part of how he did that was probably because not very many of them thought they could win themselves. Uh, so, I mean, if you were Imogen or Nicole, you'd be hardly going into this thinking you could win. You're going into it because they're, you know, you're in a certain place in their careers and they're going to get paid and they're going to go to a tropical island and maybe it'll get them something else. I mean, that's, that's why you're doing it. Um, and indeed, I did it because I was planning on retiring for par- Parliament and I thought, you know, I really would like to go into the media. I wasn't absolutely certain at that point of what I wanted to do in the media, but I thought it was a good media opportunity for me to undertake. And the money was more than fair. So that was how I came to do it. I also thought it would be you know, entertaining and good fun. I didn't realise how much I was going to enjoy it, but, you know, it was all rolled up into the decision to actually do it. There was never a question for me about me doing it. I thought it was fundamentally a good move from a media point of view for what I was planning for my future career. The same is true of them. I mean, you've got Nicole who, you know, is, I don't think she'd done any acting for years. Um, She was seeing this as a recycled chance of, of, of something. You've got Imogen, who was always trying to break out from being a bikini model into being a presenter of some kind. So it was an opportunity for them. So, but they wouldn't have necessarily ever thought they were going to win. I didn't go in with the expectation that I could win. I didn't think I knew enough about it, but I'd learned about it pretty quickly. And I learned pretty quickly that survival was just really life. Um, There wasn't, you know, it was life in an extreme scenario. That's all it really was. So, at some point, however he did it, and I suspect it's because the others thought they couldn't win, um, Justin convinced them that he should be allowed to win and they should support him in winning. So he basically really had created Team Justin. And somewhere in that, it appears there's been some suggestion of a payoff. There's the sort of, well, you know, what's in it for us? And there's the, well, okay, we can't win, but why should we really help you? And he was like, well, you know, I'm going to get this hundred grand on top. Um, So, you know, I'm going to share that around. That was the way it was put to me, not by Justin, but the way it was put to me by people in the girls team. And I was under the impression it was Imogen that told me. 
I mean, it's, apologies if I'm somehow wrong, but that's, well, it's, that's my recollection of how it all came together. It's the biggest mystery of this season. We asked it to, to David Mason. He wasn't sure. Obviously, when we get Imogen on, uh, Nicole on, and if we get Justin on, we'll, we'll ask a question to them as well. But because it's it's just the way it's it's edited, and I think David Mason had some production notes that he would release every week on the Channel Seven website, and we, we've tracked them down. And even he said in one of the ones around that week that they just didn't film anything on camera what was happening, and it shows because that episode is one of the weirdest episodes of Survivor. It's just it's these things brought out of nowhere, nothing's really explained, and then Justin gets voted out. So it's it's and like it's the way you explain that because in traditional survivor the the very few rules that there are one of the key rules is you cannot conspire to share your winnings to bribe people and say like hey i'm going to win in the us a million dollars i'll give you half of it if you ta- you're not allowed to do that yeah. and that's where when we were talking about that episode if that's specifically not in your rules if you got given any rules then justin's not breaking any rules by maybe offering a bit of money and I'm like, well, there's no rules. Why not offer it? It's playing the game. So while some people might frown upon Imogen clearly was very much against it, hence why, you know, she risked the immunity and sort of, you know, wanted to speak out against it. But, again, it's sort of like if there's no rules written down and Justin can openly do that, then he's doing what he can to win the game, right? Look, I, I'm not aware of us ever being given any rules. Um, certainly nobody suggested anything along the lines of, I mean, it never occurred to me to make such a deal myself, but I certainly don't remember being told we couldn't do that. So uh, your point is quite valid. Um, Justin, by doing so, if that's what he did, and that seems to be what took place um, or allegedly took place, then um, he probably didn't do anything wrong. And I, I think that um, I think Imogen's reaction to it was a bit crocodile tears like. You know, I don't think she was really fussed about it. I think. Well, she made up with him pretty quickly when he came yeah. back in the game, yeah. didn't she? <laughs> well, I mean, Imogen is a creature of need. And so, you know, there was always going to be whatever was going to get Imogen to the next square, you know. Just just on Justin quickly, um, I mean, the episode also when he got voted out initially, um, it seemed like all of a sudden you two had this massive rivalry. I mean, was that something that had happened along the way? Was it edited that way? I mean, kind of what was that relationship like with Justin when he eventually went home? Uh, look, once again, there was there was an element of Justin that I quite admired. I mean, Justin had a black belt in karate. He was a, um, a very, very high-level snow skier. You know, he was a very athletic, you know, very balanced, very capable guy where these things were concerned, and I admired that. Um, quite genuinely in Justin, and I've, in fact, I'm pretty sure I said that in my in my book. Um, but what I didn't, what I found a bit difficult with Justin is that Justin had been an actor from a very very young age, and he didn't seem to have much to offer that wasn't on script. You know, he he just didn't he didn't really he wasn't a person of great conversation when it came to things that were new or were occurring, things that were off, you know, off cuff. He, he was not a great ad-libber or contributor to conversation and those sorts of things. And it was sort of like, well, no one's holding up a cue card, so he doesn't have anything to say. Um, I found Justin very much like that. And that's, you know, that's not something that I found sort of filled with skill 
And so I didn't like that part of him. But I mean, by the same token, I mean, you, you can't dislike someone just because they have difficulty stringing a sentence together that isn't cued for them. You wouldn't like me at all then, based on that. Well, no, I mean, I, I don't dislike people for that reason. It was just an observation that I made of Justin. I mean, Justin, Justin didn't seem to have much in the way of what I would call an original thought. Um, it, all, it's, it was almost like from a very early age, he'd spend his life scripted. And it was like from a very early age, he probably had a great deal of difficulty separating Justin Melby from whatever role he was playing. Mm. Um, and I think that's probably true of a lot of actors. They they start to think they're the the role, not the person that they are. It's kind of it's kind of the two sides of a coin of people who love a particular actor. But the actor, and I'm not talking about Justin in this sense, but just who love a particular actor. And the actor might be one of the biggest assholes walking the face of the earth when it comes to being a person. But their fans don't relate to that. They only relate to the person they see on the screen. Um, it's a bit along that line for me, but it's the opposite side of the coin where the actor themselves starts to think of themselves more as being who they play rather than who they are. And I found Justin a bit like that, as if he, as if there was never really, we could never really be sure, and even Justin himself was never really sure who Justin Melby was. He was Justin Melby on Days of Our Lives, whoever that character was, and he was you know, this character over here or you know, all the things he'd been in. He, it was like he'd never really had his own life. He'd lived the lives that were scripted for him in various roles in various television and movie productions. Do you think Justin found more value in being on more episodes than he did actually in the money he was getting to be on the show? And that's maybe why he was offering money to get to the end because that way he's on, he's getting more exposure. He's on more episodes. He Quite possibly. I think Justin, Justin was certainly, I think, interested in the potential exposure that he may have gotten as a consequence of winning Survivor. Um, yes, I think that's a, a, valid, uh, a valid observation. When you ultimately get voted out, you, you answered a question that I was going to ask you about, you know, how close were you to siding with, with Guy and Justin? But, I mean, you could see the, the disappointment in your face. You could see the just the almost shock, your final words there basically calling them out as, uh, you know, for, for what they were doing that, stabbing you in the back. I mean, you, you clearly, did you have any idea that you were going home that night? Did you honestly just think like, I'm 100% safe, I'm with the girls, this is not going to happen. And then when your torch has been snuffed by Dicko, you just went on a rage back at Ponderosa when you went back there and Elton and Gabby copped a bit of a spray maybe? Yeah, look, this is, this is where I was stupid. And um, hopefully it's not a stupidity that I'll repeat or an act of stupidity that I'll repeat. And I, I know, look, I hate to cite once again the notion of, you know, I'm not, I don't think the way a lot of people think. And there are, there are things that upset me that probably don't upset people in the same way. And here's an, an example of it. I didn't mind so much that they turned on me. What I didn't like was that, Apart from the disloyalty factor of it, what I didn't like was that the, I knew there was no gain in it for them. It was a stupid thing. I, more than anything else that can even be done against me personally, I loathe acts of blatant stupidity. And it was such a, a, a blatant act of stupidity of such moronic, imbecilic behaviour from people who, I don't know, were just brain-starved. I don't know. That was what upset me the most because I knew that at the point that they got rid of me, they lost. 
they were going to lose. They were done like dinners. They had two relatively smart, game-playing, highly athletic, fresh guys in a strong alliance against these two girls who were not at any stage, even when they were at peak condition, terribly athletic and capable and had been there had been starved and weakened on top of all of that for three weeks by then, there was no prospect for them to do anything but lose and fall over one after the other. And that's exactly what happened. So when they're doing this to me, it's going through my head, yeah, this would be easier for me if one of you now actually could win. But what's going to happen is you're both going to, this is all going in my head. What's going to both happen here is you're both going to lose. You have gotten rid of me to no actual gain to yourselves and all you've done is made this extraordinary enemy that who is now on the jury that is going to do everything possible to get rid of you and make that real. And that was what upset me the most, that I was disposed of in a disloyal and dishonest sense for no actual gain, but actually to their detriment. So it was the stupidity of the act more than anything else that raised my anger. Does that make any sense to you? It does, yeah. It's actually, I, I love hearing it explained that way because, I mean, we're obviously next week's episode that we're doing here will be the the recap post your elimination, so episode 11. Yeah. And obviously everything that goes down in that, ultimately you and the jury get to decide, you know, that Nicole goes home. But yeah, in hindsight, it, 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 it is a pretty ridiculous decision. And the thing that like we talked about last week as well, we actually really praise Guy and Justin for being able to get them to do it, which is something that I think that it doesn't get credit for. Um, you know, it's 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 a sad fact about your season that it's so remembered for this god-awful twist. And can I just say, left on a cliffhanger last week, Matt, I said I was going to announce last week what I thought the most stupidest twist in Australian Survivor history was. Clarify, this season, it is the worst twist in Australian Survivor history. But on that, y- you know, it's... It's all well and good to say it's it's confined by this twist and that Guy's win is taken down a little bit because, you know, he didn't play the full game. But you've got to give Guy and Justin credit for being able to get Imogen and Nicole to side with them to vote you out because, again, David Mason said he was fe- fearful that they're going to go straight away and then, boom, that was a pointless twist. Well, the opposite happened. You get voted out. Then Nicole goes next, then Imogen gets next, and the two returning players end up in the final two. The fans hate it because that's not what they want. But in terms of a production, David, well, he kind of probably got maybe in a weird way what he probably wanted. So my long-winded question or anything along those lines with that, David, not really a question, it's more of a statement to answer what you were saying is that it's, yeah, what you said makes sense. It's incredibly unique and it's just testament to Guy and Justin for being able to pull it off. Yeah, no, look, I was, as far as I was concerned, Guy, you know, was the person who most deserved to win when it came down to it. And, um, you know, I did everything behind the scenes that I possibly could to um, to help him in that sense. And, you know, I obviously voted for him myself and I don't think I had to encourage Elton terribly much to vote for Guy, but it made sense that Guy, you know, should be the winner. And um, when it came down to him and... and um, Justin at the end, that was a, a pretty straightforward choice for me. But when when they did what they did to me, I immediately understood what was going to happen and it just, I was gobsmacked. I was also, also thinking, I just can't believe that I didn't see that coming. You know, I, I just didn't see it coming because 
I didn't see that they wouldn't see that the whole act was in fact not in their interests. And that was it, you know, you've disposed of me in a fashion that is not actually serving your own interests. And yeah, behind the scenes, I later find out that, you know, or no, actually before it all happened, when Guy and Justin were talking to me and we went out on a fruit picking thing together and that was when they were talking to me about it all. They're saying, oh, this is what they're going to do. They're so and so and so. And I'm like, oh, well, you know, I didn't argue with them too much about it. I just sort of took it all in. I said, you know, look, I have an arrangement with them and I have to stand by the arrangement. And, um, yeah, that's how it is. I, I can see what you're saying, but, you know, we'd also appreciate that, whilst I, I'm not going to say that you're lying to me, it's in your interest to tell me these things and and so on. And, and I went and kind of fronted the girls about it to a degree and I couldn't really get much of a straight... I didn't front them as strongly as I probably should have because I was also not wanting to offend them particularly. But as it turned out, it was just an extraordinarily foolish thing to do and I'm sorry that I didn't picture that someone wouldn't see that coming. I mean, you should have been able to see it coming a mile away. And Justin and Guy were telling me how the girls were saying to them, yeah, you know, it was it was like um, it was like a couple of nine-year-olds having a, 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 you know, a couple's marbles game. You know, no, no, this is Survivor. You know, you're down to these last few people. You know, it's a, ma- it's a major television show. Um, but for Imogen and Nicole, they were talking to Justin and, and Guy about it as if they were, you know, nine-year-olds playing marbles. This is going to be great. It's going to be, you know, there'll just be the four of us. There'll be the two girls and the two guys. And it's sort of like couples against each other. Oh, it's going to be beautiful. You know, that's how they were. And I was like, how could you be so mindless about all of this? You know, how could you not see what you were doing? How could you not see how you are, so seriously disadvantaging yourself, you're actually voting out your ally. And that was what got to me. After you got voted out, did you have any interactions with David Mason or any other production members where they were in shock as well that that, that had happened, that you had got voted out? I don't think so. I, I Look, they never gave very much away, but I got the impression that me being voted out didn't suit what they wanted. I got that impression, but I'm not sure of it i'm not sure of that um but i certainly i got the impression however i got that i got the impression that really it didn't suit where what they wanted to keep filming for me to suddenly not be there so you you must have loved that the next episode after you being voted out that you got to have involvement in obviously splitting up those girls and ultimately one of them going home well, of course, I knew that was going to happen because we understood that we would be the yeah. judges. So, I mean, I knew that was going to happen. So, once again, as I say, you're not only you're not only voting out your ally and keeping in your enemies, you're also making your ally an enemy and putting him on a panel that then determines who's going to ultimately win. So, I mean, how could you be that silly? Hmm. Why did I not see that people could be that silly? So, I was also upset with myself um, for miss for you know, underestimating the foolishness that people can, can but, be led to. But trying to prepare for stupidity is the hardest thing to prepare for because you don't know how stupid someone can be, I, I guess. Have you know. I have a better understanding now how stupid people <laughs> can be. Um, it has been a great lesson for me. <laughs> what, were, what was said when Nicole ultimately came that night, Imogen came back night, that night, like, 
did you sort of say to them, like, you guys are stupid. Like, I knew this was going to happen and look what's happened and here we are. Uh, did they say anything to you? I mean, kind of what was said before that final tribal when you got a chance to finally speak to Imogen and Nicole again? No, look, I I don't actually remember having a great conversation because, of course, it, you know, it was another two days before I think Nicole got out and mm. then Imogen got out. And so it was a few days had gone past. I don't particularly remember having much of a conversation with them about it. Um, I think that they, from what I understand from behind the scenes, they fairly quickly realised it was a mistake. Mm. But I think that they didn't realise it was, like when I say fairly quickly, when Nicole went, they realised it was a bit of a mistake. So it wasn't until there were actually consequences of their actions before they started to realise that they'd made a mistake. And certainly, ultimately, I have the impression that they didn't. I do recollect, um, I do recollect being at a party um, at David Mason's place sometime after the show had finished, and Imogen, you know, suggesting to me that they had made a mistake. And is it true? Now, I had a conversation with Imogen Bailey last year um, during the Survivor Australian Survivor Hall of Fame, and she mentioned about getting a letter from you that she might still have or an email is it is it true that you did that send that to her and do you remember what you said to Imogen in that letter or email whatever it was no I've probably still got it um I you know I'm sure I had some contact with Imogen um once or twice after the show but I'm I'm I don't recollect saying anything untoward is there a suggestion that I, I no I don't think no, I don't no. think it was that I think it was more of a like a she still got it and, you know, just it was sort of a conversation about the game. I don't think it was ever implied that it was anything, yeah, untoward. Oh, yeah, was I, a... I was, I had some contact with her, um, but I've never said anything untoward to her. No. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I could be wrong, but I'm not sure. It might it might have involved, obviously, that you, your disappointment of, of them, you know, that you were that you had loyalty with them and, and that they had obviously I, turned I on you. Rem- I'd be happy to be corrected or to see something that I wrote along that line, but I don't recollect ever having that kind of conversation or writing anything like that to to them. No. One thing... Suggestion that I wrote something like that? No, I, I, yeah, I don't think it was ever sort of implied anything else that way, but... Um, no, I thought I just had a yeah. couple of friendly communications with her. I don't remember... Uh, I've Possibly. Certainly, yeah, I've certainly never had a go at her. No. Oh, no, I don't think that was ever... Yeah. No, I think it was more just... Well, I guess what what we're getting at is that you know you did you did end up having a love for this game, and that you know that obviously um, mm. you know that you were disappointed obviously by the way you got voted out, and and maybe it was just something to do with that. But um, yeah, it definitely well, wasn't that you were bitter well, or anything like that. At the end of the at the end of the day, I mean, it can be construed that I simply made a mistake. Mm. You know, I mean, I was I was voted out as a consequence of my own error. I mean, that, that's what really happened. I was, it was stupid on their behalf to do it, but it was also a mistake and foolish from my point of view for it to have happened because, you know, I should have been playing better at that point. But it was, you know, my, my desire to believe that people um, to a degree, at least to a degree, can be trusted by their word, you know, that, that you know, when a person tells me they're going to do something, it doesn't carry the same weight for me now as it did back then. 
but there's an it's carried a level of weight for me back then but what carried the most weight for me was that it was foolish to do anything other than what was what they said they do and so in terms of the way survivor is played i made a mistake of not realizing they could be that silly but also not realizing that they would completely break their word and look at uh, that matt you can admit that when you play crap in survivor you play crap so i mean it's obviously been 15 years for david it's been a little bit less for you so one day matt you'll be able to admit you played crap on survivor so yeah, there you i'll go. wait to at least 15 years until i admit that <laughs> <laughs> certainly you know certainly i was engaged as being party to my own execution by virtue of not seeing that coming uh, i just i wouldn't i just did not see it coming and there was nothing that Guy could say to me that would have really convinced me of it because of my fundamental belief that no one could really be that stupid. I mean, seriously, that's what it came to. You could not possibly be that stupid. So that was my undoing. My undoing was never actually being able to foresee that anyone could be so stupid as to do what they did. And, gee, they proved me wrong. Well, by you making that mistake, it did allow you to re reunite with Elton back at the hotel. And we saw throughout the season when you guys were, you know, on a chopping block at times that uh, you talked about, you know, when you get to the hotel, you'd, you'd enjoy a couple of beers together, maybe some steaks. That time that you were in, in the jury and back at the hotel, did you end up getting to enjoy a few beers with, with Elton? Yeah, I saw a bit of Elton and Elton, Elton paid me, he paid me one of the greatest compliments that I've, I think I've ever had in my life. Um, he probably wouldn't remember it because it wouldn't be a big deal, particularly to him. But um, he told me, and I was kind of gobsmacked when he said this because I just didn't picture it because yeah, contrary to what a lot of people think, I really don't have this massive view of myself. And Elton said to me, I learn more from you than I've ever learned from any other person in my life. Wow. Wow. And I was like, shit, what? What did I teach you? I don't, I don't know, but whatever it was, obviously by observing what whatever it was that he thought he observed during the course of us being on Survivor, he thought he learned a lot of stuff from me. Wow. And I was, you know, I was really, um, I was really taken by that. I was really, really taken by that. I it was one of the nicest things anyone's ever said to me. And obviously it doesn't seem like perhaps a huge thing, but yeah, given all of the things I've been engaged with during the course of my life, but it stuck with me all my life. I just thought it was one of the nicest things anyone's ever said because it was, so, it was like that, so genuine. It was so genuine. And it was also something that took me by surprise because I'm still not sure what it was that I showed him, but whatever it was, it was something that was natural because you know, I didn't have sit down. We didn't have lesson time with David. You know, I didn't sit down with Elton and say, well, we're going to do this. You know, it wasn't like I was trying to teach him anything. Whatever it was that he learned that he put so much stock in, he just picked up naturally by watching me being me. And so, you know, it was for me, it was an enormous compliment. While we're talking about it, Elton, have you ever met someone that loves steak so much? Because that's all he wanted to talk about out there was his steak. <laughs> you were, You had to... Talk him into how when you guys won those stakes for the challenge, he wanted you to just stew. slap it on, and and you were like, no, no, we're gonna we're gonna stew this and do it in the bernays sauce with the zesty salad, and he he wasn't convinced at the start. He was like, oh, I don't know, I just want to put it on the grill and start eating it. Yeah, uh, 
look, I can see how he felt about it. You know, it was because <laughs> uh, Elton really, you know, he he was a he was a steak and sort of three veggies. You know, he's beef yeah, yeah. sort of person. You know, and probably the vegetables would be potato, potato, and potato. Yeah, <laughs> you know, he was he was like that. He was, you know, Elton was sort of, you know, he was gorilla, he man. You know, he was very much like that, and you know, he was very well built. And you know, once again, very fit and very fast, and you know, and quite young. I mean, Elton was only about twenty six, I think, at the time. Um, so, yeah, he certainly he wanted his meat. And look, we were somewhat deprived of food, you know, as you are on Survivor. And someone like Elton was probably very much going without. He was probably muscle wasting at that stage. Well, you loved your protein. We, I, I, I forgot the protein count, but we counted there on one episode. I think you said the word protein about 20 times or something ridiculous like that. So do you still yeah. keep up with your protein, love, 15 years later? I, I have a quite extraordinary diet um, in, the, in the first instance, I have a completely supplement-free life. And in fact, I'm, I'm engaged in writing about living supplement-free. And when I say that, you know, it probably doesn't seem like very much, but when you think about it, most people take something. Um, they either take omega-3 capsules or, you know, they take the odd vitamin C capsule or, I mean, I know a lot of people who virtually live on vitamin B supplements and, you know, people are sort of throw, taking down spirulina and all sorts of stuff. You know, the, in the circles I move in, it's hard to find people who aren't taking something. I don't take anything at all. I get absolutely everything I need through food. So I have a completely clean nutrition only through food diet. Uh, so, yes, I am very engaged in consideration of protein and calcium and vitamin D and absolutely everything. I love that. I love I love the fact that we got you to say the word protein on the show. That was protein. the sole purpose of that question. I mean, just on the food aspect, though, David, I mean, you obviously go on to be on Hell's Kitchen. So I'm guessing cooking is something that you, you, you really enjoy. You were the chef out there, the master chef, we set it out there. I mean, how much did you enjoy being able to, I guess, play with the island food that you got there? You you were making your your mango breakfast out there, your famous breakfast calls and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you look like you're living it up there in Vanuatu being able to cook all this food. Island porridge. Yes. <laughs> Hermit crab risotto. Yes. Um, yes. It's a bit chewy, but crunchy. It's certainly crunchy. Um, yeah, look. That was, you know, that was part of, you know, playing the role. That was part of, I mean, I, yeah, I do actually like cooking. I've always liked cooking since I was a very small child. But it was part of playing the role. It was part of being useful. And, I mean, I think you know, there were several times during the show where it was considered that I was some use because I could cook. Um, so there was certainly once or twice where, I was kind of kept around because I wasn't seen as too much of a threat and I could cook. So mm. that was really me just finding a place in the overall scheme of things where I was of use, non-threatening, and therefore not someone you had to sort of just quickly get rid of. Can, I, can, I, can, we, can we just really quickly on that, I'd be a terrible host if I didn't ask you to do this, can we get you to give us a breakfast like in, in good old David Oldfield style? Breakfast! Oh, look at that, Matt. We've achieved some things on this show, and that's up there. There Brilliant. it is. <laughs> oh, here comes Elton, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I know. Porridge. I'm sorry, I should have said steak. <laughs> did Did Justin Melby ever admit to breaking that pot? 
No. But- <laughs> <laughs> what was he doing not in your kitchen? Ever, I mean, not sure Justin's ever admitted to anything. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he doesn't even admit he was on Days of Our Lives and Home and Away now. But yeah, that was that was hilarious that episode. And because even Justin's confessional, he's like, "Did I break the pot? Well, I've been known to be clumsy." Ha 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 ha! And it's like, did you or didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I was actually quite upset about it. You were, you were. <laughs> it wasn't sort of something we could run down to the shop and replace. Yeah. <laughs> now, we started out with very little, and we gathered a few things, and then yeah. I mean, but how silly were they to give us, you know, earthenware pots anyway? <laughs> well, the, the funny thing was, I mean, we've never seen um, it. You guys had a full full on kitchen. I know you won mm, it in a reward, reward challenge, but how, I mean, how good's that? I mean, we thought by the end of the season, you're going to have basically have this whole mansion of a house built, you know? Maybe we, we often laughed at Kim Johnson. She left too early. Like, if she, if she would have known by the end of it, you're going to have a whole kitchen out there, she probably would have stayed. Yes. Well, it's a, look, it became relatively, I wouldn't say it became, well, yeah, look, I was never concerned by the discomfort of it um, at all. I mean, it was a bit rough when it rained. It was, there was one period there where it rained and rained and rained and rained. And I seriously, I was sleeping with my feet in a basket to try and keep my feet dry. And we were just laying on wet sand. And how we didn't all get sick is really beyond. But, excuse me, there was another part I must tell you about and sorry, excuse me, scooting away from your particular questions, but there was one particular part that I'm sorry never went to air, but I understand entirely why it didn't go to air. And that was where, as you'd appreciate, the producers, you know, like they loved images of Imogen throwing up mm. and, and images of, you know, Nicole looking like what we now know of as The Walking Dead, one of my, <laughs> my favourite TV shows, um, you know, sort of stumbling along, sort of dragging a piece of wood for the fire or something. They loved these images of, you know, survival where people are just collapsing. And they were talking to me there on, you know, the one-on-one sort of things with the producers. And at one point they said to me, so, you know, how are you finding it? You know, it's, it's pretty hard, you know, it's cold, it's raining, there's not much food. How are you feeling about it all? And I said, well, look, you know, I, it's kind of tough, but, you know, my father was shot down and captured by the Japanese and, and on a starvation diet and weighed half, you know, lost half of his body weight uh, and was beaten and tortured and threatened with death every day. His best friend was beheaded. Um, you know, I always put everything in perspective. And when I think about that, it's not so bad here. Uh, you know, I, I know that if we get hurt, someone's going to come and you know, give us medical attention. And um, I know we're not actually going to starve. No one's trying to kill us. And there's a point where it ends and we go home. So I'm not really finding it all that hard. Now, of course, none of that went to air because it was completely opposite to what they wanted to hear. And I, as I was saying it, it never occurred to me that it wouldn't go to air because to me it was a good story mm. and it was the truth. That was how I felt. I always put everything in perspective. Everything for me is a matter of perspective. No, no, what's happening to you? And I really, I love that old adage, you know, the biblical adage of, you know, I was so sad, words to the effect of, I was so sad that I didn't have shoes until I saw a man who didn't have feet, you know, and I, everything to me is that kind of perspective. So no matter what's going wrong for you, there's somebody who's got something a whole lot worse happening. And so 
often I feel quite pathetic if I ever feel sorry for myself. I think, you know, I really shouldn't feel sorry for myself. Uh, so I was sorry that story never went to air because it was a good story and it was true, but it didn't suit what they were looking for. Well, you'd be happy to know, David, I can guarantee you that it might be 15 years later, but the story will finally make it to air. We'll, keep it, it, we'll keep it in the final cut. Don't worry. <laughs> Yes, no, no, now our producers don't sort of uh, cut that out. A couple of a couple of quick things that I want because you're our first jury member, so there's uh, there's one question that I want to sort of ask in terms of the what if scenario that we'll get to, which uh, you know we did a lot last season and we'll do for this season as well. But the reward that you had with Gab and Imogen that we obviously shared our little uh, thug life moment. Uh, the yeah, oh, looking good to me, fun. girls. Share, <laughs> share the soap now. Um, we 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 raised the question. On that episode, you, you you had a good time in front of the mirror. You you enjoyed yourself, uh, sort of uh, checking yourself out there in in the mirror. What was it about the mirror that was so good to you, David? Uh, the the shower, everything. Uh, you know, was it a case of a bit of alone time with yourself? There was what you needed. I mean, kind of. Uh, what went down in that bathroom in that nice little uh, villa? Well, you, you know, they say love the one you're with. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> The, the reality of it was that the mirror was very dimly lit. And, and I, you know, sorry, I'm a bit of a pedant in certain aspects. And, you know, I have, um, I have designed um, all of our homes for the last several, you know, the last four or five homes we've had, I've always designed the interiors. And one of the particular specifications, I'm really, I'm going to seem like a pedant here, but one of the particular specifications that I have is where the lights are above mirrors. Yeah, you know, merely for the capacity of shaving closely and accurately and, and this sort of stuff. And, you know, sadly, like most places, you know, the mirror, the light was sort of like here, but the mirror was here. And, you know, to really actually see yourself in a mirror, the mirror's got to be direct, the light's got to be directly over the mirror. It can't be behind where your face is like this. Well, that was scary. Look at that. <laughs> um, so... It was more a matter of I was trying to get up really close. I can't really quite see this bloody mirror. It's freaking white, you know. It was more a matter of that. And I did shave about three times. You know, I hadn't shaven for about two weeks at that stage. And I probably shaved. And I think we also, we only had like um, big disposable razors. And, you know, they're not, not great to use at the best of times. So it was really just the fact that I'm a pedant. Uh, and I was trying to really get a really good shave. I shaved about three times. So it seemed to take a very, very long time because it did take a good a long time because I couldn't see very well. Um, and because I was, you know, really trying so hard with this big disposable razor to, you know, get a good shave. Well, because Matt was a bit questioning there. You, you mentioned about loving the one you're with. Uh, we were thinking maybe that, you know, been a couple of weeks away from the wife at that point. You're in the bathroom by yourself, like, you know, no cameras around. It's never been a rule. Masturbation has never been a priority for me. So. Right, okay. There, Matt, you've, you've had it quashed. There well, it is. I just, like I said to you earlier about being a participator, not a spectator. Masturbation <laughs> <laughs> is like being a spectator sport, you know. So. When you've got Gabby. not really involved, you know. <laughs> when you've got Gabby and Imogen, two models, both saying that you spent more time in there than they did put together, you had to start asking the question, well, what was he doing there? Who knows? Who knows? Yeah, well, well, the fact is that, you know, what they needed to shave was a much smaller area than you. What I did love, David, though, is when we did that Thug Life video, you actually you did send me a message and saying it's like one of the most liked 
things you've ever put up on social media. Are we glad that you got a bit of a laugh out of it? I've got many. It's one of the more viewed vids of mine on Instagram in the last couple of months. Yeah, absolutely. It's It was just such a funny moment because we, we've had a lot of fun with Dicko Thug Life this season and Matt sort of was like, no, this, this is the Thug Life moment because it's, it's just it's the manner in which like it's it's got nothing to do with the way you say it. It's just almost like you say it and you've got this little moment where you kind of like lick your lips. And it's kind of like, obviously completely unintentional. I don't know. Maybe it was intentional. But it's just like, ah, oh, looking good to me, girls. How's the, how's the soap? <laughs> yeah, well, and of course, the, the impression is that I can see them. And yeah. my recollection is they're wearing bikinis. They were, they were. Because they're being filmed and all that sort of stuff. So, so, I mean, I wasn't seeing anything I hadn't seen a hundred times on the beach during the course of the pr- filming and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, and it was... Yeah, <laughs> was like, oh wow, you look at that. It's a pleasure machine. Imagine if Twitter existed back then, that would have been interesting. The other yeah. one, I think I asked you this briefly once in a in a message once about your your cap because this, like, in American Survivor, you know, you, you've got a lot of famous contestants who are kind of defined by their baseball cap. You know, Boston Rob with the Red Sox. You've got T Bird with the Atlanta Braves, and you had, uh, I, I believe, it's a St. Louis Cardinals hat that you wore throughout this season. I mean, was that just? Uh, Hey, we need to bring a hat out to Vanuatu. Let's grab one. Was this a lucky hat? I mean, kind of. What was what was the story behind wearing the Cardinals hat for that season? Yeah, look, I, I hope it's not too sad to say this. There wasn't a particular story. I think it was just you know one of the. I, I actually didn't. I wasn't a person who actually ever really usually wore a hat. I do actually mm-hmm. wear a hat all the time now because I'm so cognizant of skin cancer and I've had so many skin cancers and I've you know, had 22 stitches down here from one they cut out in my nose. And so I'm, I'm really, um, but all of that has happened since up until the point where I was going on Survivor, I wasn't a person who ever wore a hat, never wore a hat anywhere, never used sunblock, never wore a hat, was never a person ever to be concerned about any of these things. God, when I grew up, we used to lather ourselves with coconut oil mm. to, get, yeah, to, yeah. to get brown. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I just sort of, well, I needed a hat. Okay, I'm going to need a hat because I'm going to be out all the time. This I really actually do have to have some protection because there's no getting away from it. So I think it was just pretty much a hat that we had laying around. It was There was no great, and it was a new hat, I think, at the time. So started with, I've still got it. It's with all the Survivor stuff somewhere. One question we probably should have asked at the start of this, uh, this interview, what was your luxury item? Oh, well, and this is odd then in the sense of um, what I'd said about living supplement-free. Um, my luxury item was vitamin tablets. Oh, wow. So okay. I actually had a huge mixture of vitamin tablets. Um, I don't know they helped particularly, um, but, yeah. That's Were there protein, protein ones? Oh. No, no, no protein, sadly. No, just but mostly vitamin Bs, vitamin Bs, vitamin Es, um, and, and vitamin C. Vitamin B, vitamin C, vitamin um, e were the primary ones that I had. That's interesting, actually, because in in Australian Survivor now, you actually get given a, a vitamin tablet every day. Do you? Yeah, yeah. And that's part of your. Health, so you got given check. one then, Matt. You got given that's one right. tablet. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I wasn't there. I wasn't on my season very long, David. But, uh, but yeah, voted out first. We were the Kim Johnson. I was the Kim Johnson. Oh yeah, but, he was the Kim Johnson. <laughs> but I I did not vote for myself, David. So that's all right. Okay. The, Which. Yeah. 
as I mentioned, you're our first jury member on the show, and we always like the what if scenarios and kind of you know we talk about in the episodes. Had this been a final two? Had this been a final two? Who would you voted for? So, given you're our first, I've got a couple here to to put towards you here of who you would have voted for if things would have changed. Now, a couple here I'm assuming wouldn't change. If it was a guy versus image in final two, are you, are you still voting for guy in that scenario? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Uh, if it's Justin and Imogen, who are you voting for? Probably Justin. Okay. Nicole versus Guy. Is that still Guy? Absolutely. Yeah. Would have right, so guy, guys at the end, no. guys getting your vote. Okay. Uh, Nicole versus Justin. Probably Justin. Okay. Well, here's the, here's the kicker then. Nicole or Imogen? Oh. Probably Imogen. Interesting. Okay. The other one that I'd love to find out, just, and I mean, you obviously expect you to answer yourself here. I don't know. If if all things had gone how this season, I guess, should have gone, no dumb twist, two best players at the end, you and Imogen, do you think you get the votes at the end? I think I, I, think I probably could have convinced the jury. Yeah. Um it's it's difficult. It's difficult to say. I'm, I'm confident I would have had Guy's vote. Um, I'm confident I would have had uh, Elton's vote. Um, beyond that, it's hard to say. I mean, Justin. I think Justin has. Um, it's hard to say. Justin. No, Justin probably wouldn't have voted for Imogen. No, I think I probably could have made it on. On Justin and. Guy and Elton to start with. But I think I could have also made a fairly compelling case depending on what those final challenges were. I think my own work to get to the end, I could have made a fairly compelling case. I think I would have been able to better articulate things generally uh, from a sales presentation point of view than perhaps Imogen may have been. Um, by the same token, you know, maybe there'd have been a bit of a bit of a sympathy vote and Imogen sort of like a girl and she's the underdog and, hey, this is a chance for us to have a, a female winner of Survivor. And so, you know, I may have been up against that to a degree, perhaps more so now than in 2006. But, um, yeah, I'd say it had been a better than a 50-50 chance, better than a 50-50 chance if that had been the end. But well, I never would have loved to see it. it. Sorry? I was just going to say, I would have loved to see it because having a politician at a final tribal council selling themselves, I mean, that's kind of your job. So, I mean, I think it kind of would have worked out very well to see what your opening speech would have been to the jury. I mean, I, I reasonably think I would have had a bit to sell. I mean, I, I think I could have sold the idea that I'd been consistent, you know, all the way through and that I hadn't been carried particularly and that I'd won individual challenges that were both um, intellectually and physically based and, yeah, so I, I think I could have done a, a blow-by-blow description of why I was the most worthy candidate having gotten to the end. Now, as I say all of that, I never expected to get to that point. I actually expected that the most likely, mathematically the most likely outcome was us getting rid of Guy, getting rid of Justin, and then Imogen and Nicole getting rid of me. That's what I really expected. I only actually expected to run third. And I was quite genuine when I explained that to the girls before Justin and, and uh, Guy came back. I actually expected that mathematically the most likely scenario was for them to be the final two and I would have been out as number three. 
In, in hindsight, though, watching that final challenge, the the sort of the balancing one, I mean, you would have probably been quite good at that, sort of based on sort of your physical abilities and everything. And obviously, you know, Imogen didn't win that last challenge, hence why she goes out third. So, I mean, how do you think you would have gone on a challenge like that up against Imogen and Nicole? Well, I had a bit of a bad back. Hard to sell, really. Um, but the other thing that we can't be certain of is, once again, the way these things change, if I'd still been in the game and it hadn't been who was there, we can't be certain that would have been the final challenge. True, very true. Yeah, that's so, a good point. You know, yeah. Because they, these things obviously, even back then, there was a level of, I think, manipulation mm. based mm-hmm. on the outcomes they'd like to see and who had the strengths and weaknesses. So, yeah, we can't be certain that would have been the final challenge. Did you keep any memorabilia from the show, David? Yeah, as I've got, um, I've got probably a Kukula and a, a Mosso um, uh, buff. Yeah, we call them buffs. Yeah. yeah, and excuse me, I've got um, obviously still got the cards hat and all that, and I've still got the uh, the Daisy Duke sort of you know shirt, the sort of <laughs> blue. I think it was a Gap shirt actually. Um, I've still got that, um, but they're all sort of packed away somewhere. All of that stuff's packed away, and I do have. Um, yeah, the, the tribal letters, you know, the tree letters and all that sort Matt's of stuff. That's favourite, the tree mails. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, tree he always mail. loves to read on those, them, yeah. Got those sorts of things. But, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't keep a huge amount of stuff. I just kept what was, you know, what was easy for me to grab and keep a hold of. Well, one thing I'd like you... Not like the Akuba and the great boots that I got from I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here. <laughs> <laughs> kept all those. I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts. You obviously mentioned that... You know, TV is not something you watch, so I'm not sort of not sort of sure how much of the the Channel Ten version you watch. But they did an All Star season about a year or so ago, and obviously only kept it to Channel Ten players. They they didn't, you know, consider your season or the original Channel Nine season. Now, if Matt and I were producers, Matt and I were people involved in casting. To us, any All Star season of Australian Survivor would automatically include you. It wouldn't be a question. You, you, Imogen, and Guy would be on a on a list straight away of people that you would put in consideration. And I would argue I would put you ahead of Guy. Not not anything against Guy. It's more about what you would bring to the show over Guy. Two part question: A, what do you think of the fact that Channel Ten ignored your season and didn't consider you? And B, did they ever consider you? Because and we know Guy Leach has been called by Channel Ten. Whether or not that was for a Champions vs Contenders or All Stars, we're not too sure. But uh, I guess both sides of the spectrum there. What do you think? And and maybe were you called or considered? Because you've obviously done I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here, so you're on kind of Channel 10's books in some way. No, I haven't been called by Channel 10 for anything like that. Um, so, no, they didn't contact me. Look, I I understand the way these things work and, you know, Channel 10 are obviously wanting to promote Channel 10, so they don't want to promote. And there's that's generally how things are from a, um, a cross-channel point of view. There is a tendency not to want to uh, use somebody who's been on another channel until it becomes absolutely necessary because you don't have any other choices. So it makes sense that they would make the all-stars their all-stars rather than someone from somewhere else. And, you know, like I've seen this in other reality shows where, um, where you can be on a reality show and the channel, uh, even if the show is being produced by an exterior production company, the channel executives are pushing the production company to, for as long as possible, keep the identities from that channel still in the program. So 
uh, if you were, uh, without pointing any fingers, if you were a, a presenter of some show on Channel Z and Channel Z had a reality show that you were also in the reality show whilst being a, a cast member for a show on that station, um, that station would be pressuring the production company making the show to keep you in and someone who wasn't a regular on your station to get rid of them first because yeah. you're always looking for the cross-promotional aspects. So it, I suppose I'm looking at it from a very pragmatic point of view uh, in answering your question that it makes sense that Channel 10 would do that. From the audience's point of view, it doesn't make sense because you want the very best people that represent what you're trying to portray, which is an all stars. Yeah. So from the audience point of view, it's not a great idea. From the channel's point of view, it's completely pragmatic. And, and that's, that's our argument because, I mean, you know, we know we're in the very slim minority that is even talking about your season or the, the Channel 9 season. We know that Australian Survivor fans like to black those out, unfortunately, which is very unfortunate because... Oh, it's a, uh, it's, it's, I think it just comes down to many levels. The, the, the Channel 9 season at the time was not well received. The, the issues around the music, the editing, the fact it was filmed in Australia, there's so many issues about it that people wanted to black it out. They didn't... At the time, that was when US Survivor was at its absolute peak. It was the biggest show in the world, so they were expecting that version it didn't come across, therefore it didn't happen. With, with your season, uh, a lot of factors came down to, I mean, the twist is, is regarded as just ruining your season. Um, you know, people often don't class it as real survivor because it was celebrities, you played half the time, you know, the, the, all the elements to that. But that's where Matt and I are here sort of defending it, saying, well, no, that's, that's not fair because you played that game like any other survivor player would play the game. You play the game incredibly, incredibly well. And I, the way I look at it is that you would be put on a modern day season of survivor and you would fare very, very well as well. I think just kind of the way you adapted and played would work very well. So kind of what you're saying, if it was done by the fans or, you know, people who kind of want a true all stars, you would sort of include your season in that conversation. So if that ever comes about, if one day Channel 10 wake up and go, hey, Australian Survivor Archives are right, we're going to all of a sudden remember that Whaler's Way 2002 and Celebrity Survivor exists and they gave you a phone call, would you would you do it again? Well, it would depend on a number of things. It would depend on where it was, how long it was going to go for and what circumstances my children were in at the time. Um, probably that's a little bit out of order. The circumstances my children were in at the time, where it is, when it was going to be um, and how much they were going to pay, quite frankly. Um, it would come down to all of those factors. Uh, I've, I, you know, I, haven't, I haven't been in a position for quite some time to accept um, anything because I'm so tied up um, as appropriately I should be with my children um, because we are going through a very, very difficult separation process and, you know, and so, uh, yeah, my primary focus and my 100% job is being a single dad. And I'm one of those rare, one of those very rare things where I'm a single dad who the kids live with. So, you know, it's, it really is a full-on job, especially these days with homeschooling. Goodness gracious, I'm a school teacher now as well. <laughs> uh, my, my boys are as, as wonderful and as smart and as, you know, bloody amazing as they are they're not what i class as self-starters so you know <laughs> they're really uh, any chance to slack off you know do something other calling you mr oldfield in this entire episode we need to add that uh, to the list of names that you get called we did that we actually did that in some sense the um when i was first homeschooling 
um, little teddy uh, last year, which was for a completely different reason. It wasn't to do with COVID, but I had to homeschool him for reasons for about four or five weeks. And I was trying to keep him in the absolute routine of school. So he was actually between nine and three, he would call me Mr. Olf. <laughs> Not dad. He wasn't allowed to call me dad. He had to call me Mr. Oldfield. And, uh, and I would dress him. It was so funny. His brother was still going to school. So I'd get them both up in the morning, get them showered and breakfasted and dressed and everything, dress them all in their school uniforms, pack their lunches and their bags, take them both to the car, drop Henry off at school and then bring Teddy back and start school at home. And then he would have play lunch and have his lunch out of his school bag and we'd go outside to do sport. It was really quite funny. So I kept the entire um, nine to three routine on you know, the different uniforms for different days. Uh, it was quite funny. So all of that would depend really on the children. How so old. the star, stars aligned though, all the stars aligned, all of that fit in, you, you would easily do it again? Oh, yes, I think so, yes. I mean, I, I have no particular hesitation beyond responsibilities. It's only my responsibilities that would cause me to hesitate in any way. Otherwise, yeah, I would do it. Especially if it was a veteran's version. It was everybody over 60. <laughs> I think I'd probably fare better in a everyone over 60s challenge. Well, I mean, you know, Shane Gould did win uh, Matt's season. So yeah. you've got a, an Olympic champion who won Survivor. So I, I, I think Shane Gould is probably still fitter now than I have been at any time in my life. So, I mean, what a remarkable, a remarkable... Australian Shane. Yeah. yeah well, she, she was 62 when she won my season. Yeah. And, you know, it's a, it's a terrible thing that probably not a lot of, not enough young Australians know Shane Gould. Mm. Well, they know, I think, are now more so for Survivor, which yeah, is, um, that, yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to say it's a sad thing to disrespect Survivor fans in the game of Survivor, but this is a person that, yeah, people should know far more for her achievements, what she did in the 72 Olympics. And everything yeah. else outside of Survivor because, yeah, she is an incredible Australian, kind of everything she achieved. So, yeah. which, I mean, I just I, lo- I just love the fact that I can say that Matt, like I, I give him shit all the time because he, he sucked at Survivor, let's be honest. But, like, Shane Gould won his season of Survivor. So, I mean, you know, you David, you're on a season that Guy Leach, uh, you know, one of Australia's greatest all-around athletes. I think that's what you called him. Uh, and then you've got Shane Gould winning Matt's season. So, it's, it's you know, all these levels there of the greatness of the people who win uh, the two people on this episode besides me, the loser in his bedroom currently podcasting on a Friday night. Um, so <laughs> I'll just I'll just shut up now. <laughs> I could be watching The Walking Dead, but I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, Matt wanted to watch The Rabbitohs. Matt's like, ah, oh, you know, I could be watching The Rabbitohs right now. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I look, I still marvel about Guy. I mean, Guy really is just, you know, even as I say, still today, you know, Guy is you know, clearly in such remarkable shape. And, you know, he's, he's a person who's stood that time of discipline of being you know, in great shape his whole life. And I think most of it these days is kayaking and he does a lot of that sort of thing. But, you know, he's um, always been a great admirer of the physical capability of Guy, especially from a, um, you know, I admire people who, I don't ever admire people who do shit that I can do myself. You know, I don't, I don't think much of that, but you know, it's people who do stuff that I can't do that I really admire and guys capacity for longevity in an event. You know, these Ironman events with the kilometers of swimming and kilometers of, you know, so many different things, the, the capacity for their resilience and having to keep going. I mean, it's just, I can't speak too highly about how much I admire that because I really don't think I could do that. 
I mean, you know, I might be able to train myself to do it, but as I say, the people I admire most, the people who do stuff that I can't do. It seems like David, anything you, you sort of put your mind to that uh, you seem to achieve, but do you remember what the response was? Like once the season was over, it was aired on TV. Do you remember like from family, friends in the media, um, what the response was and as a result of you being on Celebrity Survivor, did anything come of that afterwards? Because obviously we know you went on to be on other shows, but do you recall at the time, like did, did that open up more opportunities for you? The funny thing was there was a couple of funny things that have come from it. Um, one funny thing was that another member of parliament was quite quizzical with me about it because he often, he obviously pictured himself as maybe doing something like this. And, I mean, the crazy thing was that, he was a person who would have never been asked, be asked to do anything like this because, um, yeah, most people, as I say, the, the fame, if I put it that way, or the notoriety that I had was actually not from being a member of parliament, but from actually being a political advisor and a, and a spin doctor. That's where it really began. And it was bigger in those days than it was when I was a member of parliament, when I did Survivor. And for most part, you know, members of parliament are not really very publicly known at all. And this, this particular person, you know, would hardly have been known by anybody, despite the fact that he had a relatively important position. And he's quizzing me about this, obviously thinking about doing it himself. I felt like saying, what makes you think anyone's going to ask you? Mm. I mean, seriously. But so there was that. The other thing which will always stand in my mind is um, quite a long time afterwards when I was looking to get my eldest son into school. And there was a particular school we wanted him to go to. And it was, excuse me, you had to go and have an interview to get him into the school. Um, and I, we, my wife at the time, um, kind of, and I thought it was a bit touch and go until as we were leaving, um, the person who had been interviewing us, who was the junior school headmaster, said to me, oh, and I have to say, David, I, I remember to this day and I just, I loved you on Survivor. Brilliant. And as soon as we got out the door, I went, we're in. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to this school. And sure enough, he did. Yeah. And that's wow. that always stuck with me. So if Survivor did nothing else for me post, yeah. um, what it did do was it probably helped um, get my eldest son into the school we wanted to get him into. That's well, brilliant. well, I'm telling you now, look at that, Matt. See, people remember David from Survivor and David's had a much bigger career than you. People I talk to can't even remember who the hell you are. So, I mean, God, <laughs> no hope for your daughters getting into school one day. Just saying. <laughs> I'll be sure to use that, though, when I'm when my girls get older and I'm trying to get into school and if I'm not, if I'm thinking it's touch and go, I'm like, do you, got, do you watch Survivor at all? Survivor? <laughs> they're like, oh, I'm going to try that one, David. But So, after Survivor, though, you... you Tell us about what other shows were you on? Oh, look, it was a quite a long time between drinks. Um, you know, I went into radio uh, pretty much as soon as I... After Survivor, I retired from Parliament about mm, not quite a year afterwards. And um, I fairly quickly went into doing radio and I had just a summer show. And from that, that developed into a full-time job. And so I spent five years with my own radio show. Uh, and that was you know, very much the love of my life in that sense too. I loved to talk back news, talk back format radio. So I did that for about five years. Yep. Just butting in quickly, I did actually read and read something I don't know it was on Wikipedia, Wikipedia or an article that at one stage you were like the highest rating talkback show host or something or your show was. 
Yeah, I certainly in my time slot, I broke all the records. Yeah, yeah. All of that, and in fact, even the even when I finished in radio, um, I was the highest rating person on my station Monday to Friday. Mm, wow! Um, by a factor of two to one, um, and that's so I went out. Yeah, you know, with a, I went out with good ratings as well when I. What's that I, like having listeners, David? That must be nice. I don't know. We don't know what that's like on this show. So it's a one, look, it's a one talkback is a wonderful format because it's all live. So, excuse me, you've got. I mean, the most important thing is the capacity to be able to talk for a long time, yeah. and you've got three hour programs. Or one of the programs I did was five hours, but you know, predominantly they were three hour programs, uh, three hour time slots, and so you've got three hours of a lot of people tuned in to what you're saying. Uh, and so it was better than politics because, you know, if I had a, if I had something I wanted to get across, something, I'm dropping my G's now, if I had something that I wanted to get across and there was a particular view that I was very strong about because, I, you know, I am quite passionate about various aspects. And if there was something I was really passionate about and I wanted to get it across, I could get on there and I could storm and carry on, um, like shock jocks they would call us. I never saw myself as a shock jock, but... I would be able to do that. And the next thing, there'd be people on the phone and they want to argue with you or agree with you or you know, whatever it might be. It was fantastic in that sense because it was so immediate. The response, the capacity to say things and the response was immediate and there was engagement and it was it was a great thing. So, I mean, I had five years of that and, you know, then, you know, look, sadly, I found myself in a situation where I was unhappy with different things happening in my life. I was unhappy with things that were happening at the radio station. My mother was in the last period of her life and did in fact die just under 12 months after I left radio. And um, I had my second son really needed some extra looking after. And so the decision was made for me to, to leave. There's never really been the opportunities for a whole range of reasons for me to return to any of that, but there has been a couple of opportunities for me to do shows. So the next thing that I did was, um, I think it was First Contact was the next thing that I did. Um, and, you know, I did, really didn't want to do that show. They had to actually really talk me into it. I really wasn't all that fussed about doing it because I knew how I was going to be portrayed. But once again, I suppose what a lot of people wouldn't understand is that ideologically I felt I had to do it. Because I thought, if I don't do it, there's not going to be anybody there who's going to stay true through the whole thing. They're all going to they're all going to drink the Kool Aid, and yeah, by the time they get to the end, they're going to be hallelujah and high fiving all of this stuff that is manifested in a very very unreal sense. So, you know, I really didn't want to do that show, but I did. And then the next thing I think we did was Real Housewives of Sydney um, because my um, ex-wife was involved in that. So she was one of the Real Housewives of Sydney. So I was, they used to call me the seventh housewife. <laughs> so, you got you got your wish all the way back to that boat where you wanted to be a girl. There it was. You got it finally. There's another name for us, <laughs> best, the seventh. I wanted to be surrounded by girls. I've never wanted to, <laughs> never wanted to actually be one. Um, <laughs> No one would choose. Well, I suppose some people do choose to be girls, don't they? Um, but I, um, in fact, the best woman I've ever known actually started out as men. But, um, <laughs> I, uh, I we get the misogyny uh, from men. Um, it's all right. We, we, we need to get some controversy to get people to listen to this. Uh, keep, keep going. It's all good. 
Yeah, so I was uh, yeah, I was the most featured husband. So there I was. I was like the seventh housewife. And then after that came um, Hell's Kitchen, which I really enjoyed. I wasn't in the show for that long. I think I was third or fourth eliminated. Um, so I was there for, you know, well, actually, you know, I got paid the same, didn't matter. So there was, because <laughs> at that stage, for various reasons, it was more a matter of, well, how much are you paying? Um, and, uh, but I really did enjoy that because I, I loved Marco Pierre White, who was the sort of three star Michelin shit, you know, an absolute legend in, uh, in cooking. I mean, this is a guy who um, Gordon Ramsay was his apprentice. Mm. Yeah. Gordon Ramsay is, is better known uh, publicly than Marco Pierre White. But picture it, Gordon Ramsay was Marco's apprentice. And, yeah, he was the youngest ever three-star, you know, three-Michelin hat chef in the world. And he was also, um, you know, we had shared some ancestry and some interest. We both had a great interest in military history. He was from uh, West Yorkshire. And, and I'm not, I was born in Australia, but my ancestral roots going back a thousand years, uh, no joke, going back a thousand years, uh, Yorkshire. And so it was quite funny. We seemed to have quite a bit in common and we, we really were very much alike. And I learned an enormous amount in a short period of time. I learned an enormous amount about cooking from, uh, from Marco. I don't use a lot of it these days because of the simplicity of the way that I eat, but I do cook you know, really quite good meals for other people that I don't eat myself. Um, so, yeah, that was great. And then the final one was I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. And that was just sort of like, oh, well, yeah, the money's good. And um, trip to yeah, South I Africa. I haven't been to Africa. Yeah. So, um, yeah, why not? Which was it? I, I look. I don't watch a lot of reality TV outside of Survivor, but generally it's one of these things that if there's a former Survivor contestant on something, I will pay a bit of attention to it. Can't say I watched The Real Housewives, David. Sorry, for, sorry for that. But I did catch a bit of you on Hell's Kitchen, and I do remember a bit of I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here because that was that was a Bernard Tomich season, wasn't it? That kind of all the controversy was around that that he had like just pulled out of the Aussie Open and then he was on that and then didn't he, like, quit, like, on day one or two of that as well? I think that was the one, yeah, because we weren't there from the start. We were this controversial couple of intruders. Ah, right. my wife did it as well. We were the first ever, I think we were the first ever married couple on uh, on I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here and we were the, we were the guy, almost the guy and, um, and Justin of that series. We hadn't been there before, but we were the intruders. So we were never going to be terribly popular. Uh, and, of course, we were portrayed as controversial and unpopular in the first place and painted as villains. So we were very much, from a production point of view, used in that, excuse me, in that sense. Um, so, yeah, it, it was that show. Yes, you're quite right, when Bernard left. You were on Celebrity Apprentice as well, weren't you? No, no, I didn't do that. You didn't uh, do a celebrity? Uh, okay. I wouldn't, I I wouldn't. You'd be good at Celebrity Apprentice. No, I, I, I mean, there are some things you don't want to do. I, I, I wouldn't do that. You should. They say you should never say never, but I, 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 I'm not breaking my neck to do celebrity and I'm not breaking my neck um, to do dancing star. Sorry, it was, it, it was Dicko that... Dicko sorry, won it was Celebrity Dick, Apprentice. Yes, that's where Matt. I'm... And, and, yeah. and then Ben Dark also went on there from... Yeah, okay. Yeah. No, we, we, we had that, that survival. And didn't I haven't seen the new one yet, so don't spoil it how we, he went, but didn't uh, The Golden God just do the recent reboot? Yeah. Of yeah. that, so okay. Oh, God. The uh, day, the other day, so 
David Janat, who, uh, spoiler alert, won Australian Survivor All-Stars, was on the second Champions vs. Contenders. We actually, it's, it's, it's interesting that we have discovered the name David is actually shrouded in greatness in the history of Australian Survivor. There's been three of you. Also in Jewish history. Well, well, that that makes sense then, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> you got the Golden God in the Channel Ten era, who is a winner of All Stars and was a memorable player enough to get brought back, obviously for All Stars. Yourself in the Channel Seven era, who you know, as we've labelled you, the best player of the season and all the nicknames you have. And then on the original Channel Nine season, we have Matt's favourite, <laughs> yeah. just his absolute idol. In that season, in David, who sadly didn't win, but he was what fourth, third boot, fourth boot. But uh, he is very, yeah, he was a quirky guy. Is David Haas? It's great. David Haas, just crazily quirky and interesting. So there's only been three in the history of Australian Survivor, David, and and you've all got your legacies basically of this show. Well, well, look, I, t- I, I must, um, with all those names and things that were bestowed upon me that in many respects I wasn't even aware of until I saw them on your, on your podcast, <laughs> on, your, uh, on your thing on Instagram, I will tell you a story about how I used those, quite interestingly, because I actually used those as a lesson. You know, from the moment I get up in the morning until the moment my boys go to bed at night, I'm trying to teach them something because I, I believe that it's every parent's responsibility to make their children better than the parents are. And so I'm, I'm always at them with this stuff, always trying to train them and teach them in a whole range of things. And so I actually showed them that and I got them to evaluate what you'd done on the Instagram thing um, so that I could convey the lesson to them that, you know, you should never bestow titles upon yourself, that, you know, what's important is what other people say you are in many respects. You know, you need to believe in yourself, but, what stands out for others who are watching is what other people call you, not what you say you are yourself, especially when you're giving yourself a rap, you know, big pat on the back, aren't I? So great. I'm so great. Well, it always sounds better when somebody else says it. So um, I actually used um, your Instagram post um, as a lesson for my children in not giving themselves these names, but aspire to other people giving them these names. Well, I just want to formally apologise then to your children if they don't go on to much. Uh, yeah. Never is this show meant to be used for educational purposes, David. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. It's always um, a worry. You, you hope your children go on to, you know, the most important thing for your children is for them to be happy. Mm. But often happiness requires them being successful, um, at least at something along the way. Um, maybe not now that you've used us as education. So um, well, I, I, I just hope you've taught them, David, that if if one of them ever get to play Survivor and they're down to the final five, don't always consider stupidity. <laughs> always consider stupidity. Don't think stupidity isn't a factor in people's decision making against their own interests. <laughs> I hope you I hope you're teaching that. But look, in all seriousness, it's funny because like these days in Survivor, every second contestant goes out there and they look at the camera and they're like, oh, I'm the puppet master, I'm pulling the strings. And I mean, that's just everyone trying to say that where you, I mean, you literally the whole season were given the title as the puppet master. And, and Ben and I, we always say you're the original puppet master in Australian Survivor because you were, or you are. Eminently kind. And let's always remember that people that say these things about themselves, which I was making the point with my boys, are basically wankers. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, when we get Luke Tokey on the show, Matt, let's write that down. Wanker. Okay. You were a wanker. (laughs) In the words of David Oldfield, Luke, you're a wanker. Uh, (laughs) The sad state of affairs that we live in a world where people want to jump up and down and do their own publicity. (laughs) I'm great. I'm fantastic. And I just... (laughs) 
I miss that and everything else. Yeah. So, so Channel Ten, if you're watching this, this is this is why you get David back onto another All Stars too. Get Luke back on. You've got a rivalry straight away here, like straight away. Boom, that works. Who is, who is Luke? Exactly. Oh, there's, there's another okay. point. You don't even know who he is. No, so that, so, that so, works perfectly. So, so Luke, <laughs> Luke Toki is probably the biggest name I'd say in in maybe the Golden God. David Jeanette might match him now. I'd argue Luke. He, he's Luke's Toki is basically the face of Australian Survivor. So he's played twice. He's never won. Look, he's a character. He's a, he's a great guy. Um, but a wanker, apparently. Well, yeah. <laughs> nah, look, it, he, he isn't. He's actually a, a great guy, and he, he, is, he is. He's, he's the he, he, and they loved him. He's he's such a fan favorite that although he didn't win, um, he basically a GoFundMe page got set up. He, he's got a, a few young children that are suffering from different issues, and basically he didn't win, but he still got the half a million. They set up a GoFundMe page, and oh, I did see something. Yes, and yeah. and, and they he, he the GoFundMe page hit like five hundred and fifty thousand dollars. He's about to be a big brother. He's about can to be. You, he's about to be yeah. Can yeah. we set up a help David Oldfield GoFundMe page for paying? Hey, okay. we're paying paying legal costs in a divorce case. Yeah. <laughs> sure. That? Let's Good. let's get it up and running. We'll we'll put That'll aside be, by owls. Luke, I'm, I'm hopeful you're telling me that Luke plays it up for the cameras that he doesn't actually think of himself. Yeah, he plays it up for the cameras. Luke, Luke Luke's yeah. a top bloke. He, he is. He and, and look these days, these days it, Survivor's different. Like the the characters on there, they're they're trying to play different roles, and he, he's a larrikin, and, and he yeah, and like he um he comes up with all these different. You know, let's be honest. And, to, to, to point how different Survivor is now. David, I mean, like, if you're out there on an island, would you vote? Would you vote this beautiful bald man out like he got voted out first? I mean, come on, look at him, look out, look at that face. He's got David uh, Donald Bramman behind him. You would never vote him out, would you? Well, I, I would, depending on the circumstances. I don't, I'm sorry, I don't know the circumstances under which you know, how <laughs> happened to you. Uh, you probably would have voted me out, David, so it's yeah. all right. <laughs> there must have been something going this way. I think even Ben Wynn would have voted out Matt Dyson, let's be honest. <laughs> now, David, tell look, you released a book in 2019. Can you can you hold it up to the camera now? Can you tell us what it's called? Tell us what it's about? He's gonna get it, Matt. He's gonna get it. He's gotta get the problem. Now, on here. now just oh, look just at that. While, look at that. What a picture. So so tell us the title of it. He's got to to have the half-face going on there, almost like a two-face style thing. Oh, don't you call me (laughs) two-faced. I've lost him. He might be hanging up on us in a minute. (laughs) So being David, I mean, it's it's literally self-explanatory. It's just about you, I guess. Look, the interesting thing is now I look back on it, I'm wondering whether people got the wrong idea about the, you know, about the title um, because it might have seemed self-indulgent. Um, and I, I didn't consider that at the time that it could be viewed that way. And look, frankly, no one has said that to me. Um, I just tend to always overthink everything later on. And I, I was wondering where, whether maybe being David seemed like it was self-indulgent, but it really was. Um, it, it is a book that's, it, it explains, or I think it explains why I think the way I do about certain things, but it's not just really about me. I mean, it's, it's about Pauline Hanson and it's about Tony Abbott and it's about politics and it's about how things actually work in politics and how people win as opposed to how, you know, the public think they win and the numbers and how of these, those sorts of things in a, you know, the factors that come into play that really create the results rather than what the media says. And yeah, it's the facts of a whole range of things. It, it's cover to cover filled with, you know, 
facts that people would never get um, under any other circumstances. And, you know, a whole range of life's experiences and, you know, how I came into being by virtue of the parents that I had. And uh, it's also, um, it's not kind about me uh, is the thing. You know, most people have, I suppose, what we call an autobiography that is um, nice about themselves. I don't actually say anything nice about myself. For example, on the back cover, it says, um, seen by many as staunchly right-wing and on most political issues, politician turned reality star. Well, that's a bit of a joke. How is anybody possibly a reality star? Oh, you're a reality star, Let's, David. Come on. Not, we're not, am, am I being... We're reality contestants. No, Matt, you're not. David Oldfield is never far from controversy or an attention-grabbing headline. Private secretary to former Prime Minister Tony Abbott, co-founder of the One Nation Party, former member of parliament, broadcaster, public figure, adventurer, animal lover, father... Uh, do you think you know David Oldfield? Outspoken, controversial, politically incorrect. David Oldfield is highly recognisable, but what's driven him and who is he really? Ooh. Love him or hate him? Readers will be fascinated to get to know the real David Oldfield, what he really thinks and what has shaped his views on life, love and country, much of which may surprise. David Ooh. is deeply personal and honest about himself and others, while clearly self-deprecating and at times uniquely unkind to himself. He tells it how it is without seeking favour or redemption. I'm hooked. So Sign it, me it, up. Was that a comment by Dicko that you just read out? <laughs> no, no. But I, I, the point I'm trying to make is it's not a, a love-in for aren't I a great guy book. You know, it's, it's, it's just full of real, it's full of real things. And, um, I mean, anybody who was to read that, would understand, you know, some of the things that I said to you earlier about the, I don't really think as much of myself as a lot of people seem to think I do. Uh, and, you know, it's, I don't know why, but for most of my life I've faced this scenario where often people who have never met me seem to think they know me better than I know myself. But anyway. It's interesting, David, because I'm going I, to go to my grave misunderstood. There you go. <laughs> you know, I, it somehow this slipped through the cracks. I, I didn't realise that you'd had a, released a book until about a week ago. Ben didn't realise until tonight when before we, we, we started this podcast. Well, I'm not sure much of the public realised either. <laughs> <laughs> well, Did you I'm, advertise I'm, it? Well I'm gonna get to the, I'm gonna get to your sales just went up by one because I ordered it last week hoping that I would get it before tonight. It hasn't turned up unfortunately. But I'm not the sort of guy that gets too enthusiastic about reading books. I like reading but more just, you know, on, on the internet I, I obscure things. I like reading. But when I found out you you had a book, I, I ordered it straight away. I'm actually genuinely excited about being able to read this book because I think you're a very interesting bloke. I, th I think we're gonna we're gonna I'll learn a lot about you and what you've done. But you mentioned that you even and this is something I wasn't aware of until you mentioned it earlier that um, you actually touch on a bit of Survivor in there as well. Oh yeah, there's a there is a section because there's a chapter on reality TV, so there's a whole part in there about Survivor. Mm. Uh, so yeah, there's 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 a bit on all of those shows, and there's there's a section also on diving, which probably doesn't make a lot of sense, except. And look, you know, I'm a I'm a very I just I describe myself as a deep thinker. I overthink. I think very deeply about a whole range of things in regards to social interactions and and the way people perform certain you know, acts. Um, I'm, 
being entirely clean here, by the way, but I, I really am very, very much a deep thinker. And so when you do get the book, you might find it a bit hard getting through the diving aspect of it, but it also, it also might show you some things about the way I think, which is why it's being David, because diving, scuba diving, and you know, I've been nearly killed many times, uh, some of those times during scuba diving, not all those times, but you know, diving itself, and I dived from a very young age, scuba diving taught me so many things about people, about, you know, ego, and, you know, particularly about people just thinking they're so much better than they are in so many aspects and, and not being able to able to admit mistakes or learn from things they did wrong. I think scuba diving probably in many respects taught me more about people than almost anything else that I've ever done. And I hopefully got that across in the book for anyone who was interested enough to read through it. Because that's what it was all about. Did you sell a few copies? Well, I, I don't actually know what the sales figures are. I mean, it was, it, I was approached to write the book. So it's not like a self-publication. Okay. It was yeah. published by New Holland and they approached me and asked me to write it. And I, I didn't never actually really pictured writing a book about myself. And they said, we want you to write a conversational biography. So I did, you know, it's not sort of, um, I was born here and this is my life and this is what I think. It's not like that. It's, it involves all of the various interesting people, not all of them, but a lot of interesting People I've come into contact with and what I did with them and, and those sorts of so things. So we just missed out then. We just missed so, We might make it to the sequel. Oh, so you, you can be the next one. So it's not just a love-in. It's not a love-in of David Oldfield. It's not me saying what a great bloke I am. In, quite, in fact, it's quite the contrary to that. I'm really, you know, very honest about the things that I think are wrong with myself. But, you know, I have another couple of books, you know, that I'm planning. So, you know, I'm mostly engaged now in health. My, my real thing is health. I only really wrote the book to demonstrate that I could write a book so that I could write the other things that I want to write. So how, how does it work? So they basically just pay you a fee to write it and then it doesn't matter how many copies get sold, that's that's on them to try to recoup their money. Or do you still get then, depending on how many, so how does it, I have no idea yeah, how it all works. Yeah, you get paid, well, in, in my case, yes, I got paid a fee up front. So yes, they, they pay a fee up front. Um, I still haven't collected it from my agent, funnily enough, but that's me, not them. But um, they do pay a fee, so it hasn't come into my hands yet, but ultimately it will. Um, and um, then there is a royalty aspect, depending on how many copies are sold. Um, but yes, they approached me, and I was, you know, I was flattered that they wanted me to write about about me fundamentally. I'm not sure I actually gave them what they were expecting, um, but uh, but you know, I, I'm happy with it. I'm happy with it. The, there's, um, there was another one. Uh, there was another one that I was planning that's sort of related to it. But what I really want to write about is I really want to write about health and and longevity and you know the capacity to you know age in a fashion where you're you're vital and active. You know that we don't have to become cripples and we don't need Zimmer frames and. And you can you know, live with a proper diet. You can, the diet itself in many respects is medicine. I mean, a lot of people just make themselves ill by virtue of what they eat and never get themselves fixed. And, you know, we're so reliant on pharmaceutical companies. We're so reliant on the scenario of being able to get a pill to fix everything. And you don't have to be like that at all. You know, I haven't taken so much as a headache tablet in over three years um, or, you know, taken a vitamin of any kind. And I don't expect that, 
everybody's going to be able to quite turn themselves on to go to the trouble that I do to do it. But it'd be good to get a lot more people headed further down the track of understanding the nutrition that's available in certain aspects of food than the things you can do without. And the fact you can do better on all of that. And I'm sorry, I'm probably sort of wasting your time a bit talking about this, but I have a lot of things in me that I still want to write, uh, including an apocalyptic trilogy that, oh, I, that I've been working that, on. So, I like the sound of that. Well, the, the, the good thing is, David, that for any of the listeners that might be keen to, to get your book, while they're waiting for you to, to write this trilogy and, and the health book as well, that uh, the good thing is it only cost me $14 on Booktopia. So it's hey. a pretty, a pretty it good it, deal. Yeah, like it's been out for a couple of years now. Yeah, so yeah. It would be on special well and truly by now. Yeah, well, I think uh, it's funny. Like most of them, when I, I Googled it and it was like $28, and then I found it $14 on Booktopia. I'm like, yes, please. So, There's one of those discount bookstores at a shopping centre here. It might be in like the $2 bin by now. Yeah, I was going to say, check it out. Two dollar bin. Yeah, I thought you were going to. Yeah, I was worried that you were going to say I got ripped off. It should have been. (laughs) (laughs) Might find me a Kmart paying people to take them. Yeah, it's it's interesting because Amber Petty just released. She just released a book uh, recently. Her first book um, only a couple of months ago. What was it called? Uh, It's a, it's a love story. Gone blank. It's a, it's a basically a love. It's it's uh, so from Amber. It's fiction then. Yeah, <laughs> it, it is about a life. It's about it's about a it's about a life, I guess. And um, yeah, about we're discovering we're and- discovering, David, that this is actually um, a lot of Australian Survivor contestants have released books. In season one, Sylvan, who was on that season, he's actually a, 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 a sort of a, well, he 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 was more of a fantasy author, so he's released sort oh. of like you know fiction. But from your season, Amber yourself, uh, Wayne Gardner's got an autobiography. Fiona's wrote a lot of sort of witchcraft books. Yep. We're not sure if Guy's probably released a book at some point in his career. Uh, and then of the Channel 10 ones, because you've got a sort of a lot of pseudo-celebrities on those as well. I mean, Stephen Bradbury was on it. He's got a book. Um, you know, Olivia Lassala, she's got a book. You know, these sort of athletes are on there. Gavin Wanganeen recently. And then we've got a couple of other contestants who there was a, a contestant who was part of the SAS. He sort of released a book mainly just sort of on survival skills and everything. And That wasn't Ben Wynn. That wasn't, that wasn't Ben Wynn. No, it was Mark Wales. So... Well, I- yeah, well, unfortunately, you certainly wouldn't want swimming lessons from Ben Wynn. <laughs> Learn to swim with Ben Wynn. <laughs> like, like the Harold Holt memorial. Yeah. <laughs> people, and, people, it's got it's got the Ford by Harold Holt. People who taught him how to swim. And unfortunately, I, David, I haven't released a book yet, so you'll just have to wait a little bit longer. But Amber's book is called "This Is Not a Love Song." That's what it's called. This is not a love song. It's a memoir about mental health and love by Amber Petty. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't realise she had mental health issues. Yeah, I think uh, I don't look. I, it, is this a book that I probably will? I'll, I'll read it after yours, probably. But um, but uh, yeah, I think it would be an interesting read. I mean, she's done a fair bit in her life. I'm she actually going to learn to read first before yeah. I get your book, David. Just she seemed, just, she just seemed a nice girl, Amber. Amber's great, and we love Amber. Nice if you if you have a spare, you know, hour or so, and you want to listen to any of our past interviews, Amber's definitely she's great. Well. Oh, look, I, I, I intend to. I actually intend to. There's a couple of them. And I did start listening to one. I was really quite enthralled by it. Um, I thought it was a great deal. I felt like I said I can't remember exactly which one it was now. Well, there's, it's clear to us that you didn't listen to any because otherwise you probably wouldn't No, no, no. I listened show, to about so. an hour. <laughs> it, is, um, it is very hard to find time when my children are here. And my children are here, you know, 12 mm. nights out of 14. And by the time it gets to the two nights when they're not here, it gives me a chance to start doing stuff that I yeah. we're here. Um, so, 
Yeah, but now there have been, I have looked at it and there was one that I was listening to that I thought was a great deal of fun and I was sorry I switched off from it now and I had intended on going back and I'd like to hear the David Mason one. Yeah, it's a very uh, good chat. Very, very good chat. I'd like like to... The Wayne Gardner one was good. I I really enjoyed the Wayne Wayne Gardner one. I listened to the snippets that were on Instagram Mm -hmm. and I'd like to listen to that one. All of them actually been yeah, all of them. You know, even not Kim, to Kim not to our entire, but it's actually very very interesting. Like, yeah, speaking to someone like Kim Johnson, extraordinary, and I, I believe that people all over the world are listening to them and backing up, trying to hear them, even two and three times. Well, we we are inundated every single week with our thousands of listeners. It's just I can't leave the house without getting you know paparazzi. It's it's, it's quite embarrassing to be honest. But I hey, you've got to. I tell you, if the stars lined up, there is a show that I would like, I think, to do, and that would be the SAS show. Mm. Ah, yes. Yeah, Which a long you have to like beg Channel Seven to do that. Like, hey, like, come on, like, or do you have to over-publicize like they like to do on that I network? I don't. It's on. Sorry, look, it's, I know it's a crazy question for me. It's on Channel Seven, is it? Yeah, it is. Because yeah, right. so, I don't watch free to wear TV, so no. I've seen ads for it when I've been zipping through. Um, you know, it's hilarious. I think that major television stations uh, advertise on, um, you know, on web-based. Mm. <laughs> They're too busy getting uh, Roxy Jenko and Chappelle oh, Corby don't, on. Don't this. mention that name anymore, Matt. We've oh, blacklisted right. that Roxy, name. Roxy was on SAS, wasn't she? Well, she I was. think Roxy's been on everything because she just that's how she's famous, right? Because she just appears on things, and I still don't know why she's a thing. So, you but know. she won. She did win Apprentice, didn't she? Oh no, I don't think she won Apprentice. She um, never won. No, she never won. Not not anyone that I watched. So, eh. she's a very anyway. intelligent young lady, Roxy. I think we've we've overdone our Roxy quota for this show. We can't give it too much publicity. David, two two quick things before we let you go. Um, you, you obviously you've written the book. You, you you're talking about sort of the, what you're doing with your kids and planning and writing other books. What, what else? What else are you up to now? Kind of what what's the life of David Oldfield like at the moment? Life is very 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 much traumatic and on hold for me. Um, we're going through. Yeah, uh, there's no point BSing about it without going into too much detail. But yeah, we're going through a very traumatic family time. And um, you know, my whole my whole reason for living, quite frankly, is just to make sure that my children get the best that they can out of life. Um, you know, separations are always um, most difficult. It would seem on the children. Um, I'm happy to say that I haven't noticed that in my boys, and I think that that's mostly attributed to the fact that they were always used to being around me predominantly anyway so their lives didn't really change and you know i've kept them in the same activities they you know, apart from lockdown uh, they've still been in rugby they've still been in karate they've still been swimming they still go horse riding they're living in the same home going to the same school having the same activities their lives basically haven't changed and i'm, I'm grateful to have been able to um, achieve that for them um, but no, yeah, without boring you too much, my life has been on hold for a very long time because my 100% focus is my children's needs and that's going to be like that for a little while to come yet. Well, it'll be like that until they're you know, much, much older, but uh, the focus that I have to put into that currently um, will continue at 100% for quite some time to come. So I, I haven't been freed up to do much else. I am working on um, on a health-related matter, health-related scenario, which I was saying to you earlier. So I'm working on that, but that's been pretty much destroyed by lockdown. So we, we can't really get together and film. We're mostly just editing uh, by remote and uh, and I'm writing scripts and things. But 
my life's pretty much on hold. It's it's all really about being a dad and uh, and struggling forward through you know a mire of legal matters and anger and hatred. Well, so. we'll say the most important job in life often is to look after one's children, right? So uh, there, is no, there is no more important job than, than being a parent. There really yeah, is. Yeah, for sure. You're not willing sure. to shouldn't become one. And there's a whole chapter on parenthood in the book. You know, so I have very, very strong views on parenthood. You know, we there you always, go, Matt. will help you out. There you yeah. go. That's why always, you bought the book. Yeah. Always need to remember that there is no waiting room in the sky filled with children begging to be born. If you're going to bring a child into the world, you have, in many respects, selfishly determined to do that. And once you do that, then you have to be utterly selfless. And, you know, you go from being this selfish person who wanted a child to having to be a selfless person who now has to commit themselves 100% to raising that child and, in my belief, making them better than you are. Mm. If you don't do that, you've failed. Well, I can tell you there's a reason why I'm not a parent. Let's just put it that way. Uh, on that page, not David. Willing, if you're not willing to do that, then you shouldn't be a parent. So congratulations. You're, you're doing the right thing. No, no, one, no one should be a parent that yeah. is willing to be absolutely committed totally. From the moment. I, I can't even commit to myself right now. So, you know, like it's. You won't be loving the one that we're with then. Yeah, well, exactly. Well, maybe later, but that's another story. Uh, the last question I want to ask you, David, on sort of more of a reflective note. I mean, how do you reflect on your time on on Australian Survivor, sort of 15 years later, obviously we've brought back a bunch of memories for you today on the on this interview, but, I mean, it, how do you reflect on your time on the show? Uh, it remains without question being the most favourite television that I've done, of all the television that I've done, not just reality TV, but, you know, everything. Uh, the thing which I most enjoyed doing uh, from the aspect of being filmed in any sense was Survivor. I quite enjoyed Hell's Kitchen. I won't get into what else I enjoyed. Nothing ranks close to Survivor. And as I said previously, if they had said to me, if the day it finished, they said, look, we're going to stay for another month and we're going to start over, I'd have said, sign me up. You know, I'd have been ready to go. Um, and probably more so because I had a greater feeling for it by then and a greater understanding of how it was going to work. And I wouldn't have fallen for Imogen and Nicole. Um, so, um, no, I loved it. I... I, I didn't have a bad experience. So I come away with no bad experiences from Survivor. I come away with a great deal of um, having fun, learning lots and lots and lots of things, and you know, generally enjoying the overall experience. You know, I actually found, once again, the others had difficulty grasping this. I found Survivor um, quite therapeutic in many respects. Because you know, I was used to a 24-7 news cycle. I was used to my bloody mobile phone going off all the time. And when it wasn't ringing, there were text messages. And there was always drama and there was horror. And there was something going wrong somewhere. And there's somebody who wants to talk to you about something they think you've done, you haven't. And, you know, it was a, really a very traumatic existence for me around that time. Not as traumatic as it is now, but in a different way back then. And I actually found it quite therapeutic. I was going to bed early, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I, I was, I was getting, uh, frankly, more sleep than I got at home. You know, I was sleeping, <laughs> I was sleeping for ten hours, you know, and um, and there was nothing actually to worry about. And this is the odd thing for me: there was nothing to worry about in Survivor. I wasn't traumatized by any of it. Um, I slept really well. Food was a bit short here and there, but it was all part of the game and it was all fun. The competitiveness of it was a bit of fun. 
plenty of time outdoors, lots of vitamin D. I, there was absolutely nothing I can say about the experience that wasn't enjoyable right across the board. Um, and as I say, to me, in many respects, it was therapeutic. Well, that's what we like to hear. And I can say that with uh, a certain confidence right now that there's nothing about this interview that we didn't enjoy either it's been uh so much fun david to to learn everything about your time on the show and everything else and as we said at the top of this interview we were looking forward to this maybe the most and that's no disrespect to anybody else that we're we're going to get on the show in the future or sort of we've had on in the past because we wanted to hear these stories we wanted to hear it straight from your mouth we're, we're a big admirer of the way you play the game and as I as I said, I think you were the best player on on season two. You were robbed of not being on All Stars, and uh, just such a pleasure to watch you. So I'll hand it over to Matt to close out the interview. But I just want to say for myself, it's a, it's a pleasure chatting to you today, and it's a it's a pleasure to be able to hear all these uh, great stories and hear it straight from your mouth. I think I've gone bloodshot during. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that's happened, but look before you before you tune out and before Matt comes on, you know, if I could just say that. Um, Thank you to both of you. I mean, because you've been enormously kind in your comments and I think, you know, very indulgent. And I, I came here tonight with nothing particularly that I was going to say, hopeful that whatever I should say would be covered off by virtue of the questions that you would ask. Um, so I wasn't sort of prepared in any particular sense. Um, so, you know, thank you very much for having me. It's been an enjoyable couple of hours and well and well and truly worth getting away from The Walking Dead. Um, <laughs> so I'm Best very compliment into, we've ever received. I'm, I'm very into apocalyptic <laughs> shows. You know? are, um, you, are you a fan of the Fe Fear the Walking Dead as well? Look, it's good. Uh, yeah, no, no, I do like Fear the Walking Dead. I, I've been watching the world, the the world beyond the the one that's the latest one where the kids are like this. The new Walking Dead. There's only been one series as well. I can't say that's as good. Um, no, I do like uh, Fear the Walking Dead. I haven't, I'm not up to date with it. No, yeah. And I'm not going to go into the details, but that's all, that's all separation and divorce related. There's a lot of things I no longer do. Ah, uh, okay. Um, and, uh, but I'm very, I'm very much a fan, a fan of the genre of, um, of apocalyptic, post apocalyptic stuff. And it all comes down to survivor. I mean, it is all survivor stuff. And, you know, I've, I teach my own boys, you know, survivor aspects you know camouflage is quite hilarious how to be seen how not to be seen as monty python would put it how not to be seen <laughs> um and no it's yeah i'm into apocalyptic stuff but you guys have been very indulgent um and you've been great and i really appreciate what you're doing um i i hope that at some stage you have not anything to do with from my perspective i just I think you deserve to have hundreds of thousands of, of listeners to what you so do. So do we. Help us out I, there, I, David. I really think you do. You, you deserve a, a vastly bigger audience. Um, there's no question in my mind where that's concerned uh, because, you know, I did genuinely have heard some of what you're doing and I was, you know, greatly entranced by it and I wanted to hear more and more and more. Just It's just the circumstances and it's too, it's just ugly. But... Um, I've enjoyed being here this evening and I'm very, very verbose, as you can tell even by virtue of the fact that I'm rabbiting on now in my long thank you for having me. But it's been a pleasure being here. You've been indulgent. You've been kind. Um, I was trying to explain to my children um, only this morning, I'm doing Survive tonight and these guys have actually ranked me as number four, the number four player in the 76, I think it is, 
players of all of the scenes in Australia. And they're like, but Dad, how do they do that? You didn't even win. I said, I don't know. I don't know. They've even they've rated me higher than the guy who won the series I was in. I said, it's remarkable. It was one of the greatest, you know, sort of compliments I've been paid. It stands almost next to Elton saying, I've never learned so much from one from anybody before. Um, so, yeah, look, thanks. Thanks. I'll just finish off. David, by saying, look, I think I've learned a lot from you just from these last couple of hours listening to you. I'm absolutely, absolutely can't wait to read your book. You're a gentleman. You know, I think you're a wise man. You've got a, a lot of opinions and, 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 you know, when you, when you talk, people listen. And I think, you know, that, that says a lot about the type of person you are. I think you're an interesting person and uh, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure to interview to interview you tonight. It's been an absolute pleasure watching you on Survivor all those years ago. And thanks for coming on the show. No, thank you again. And I look forward to hearing what you think of the book um, because it's, it's probably not what you're expecting. And I mean, that's what I like to hear. It's not, that's you know, not what I was expecting. Wow, Matt, we've, we've talked him up all season. We talked him up in this interview and let's just say lived up to, I think everything that we we're expecting. That was uh that was pretty darn good. Yeah, a bit more than pretty darn good, Ben. It was uh, awesome. Yeah, look, we knew this was going to be a fantastic interview. I mean, it's David Oldfield, the puppet master, for God's sake. So, um, yeah, he, he 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 didn't let us down. He's, he's a character, isn't he? And uh, yeah, some interesting stories. And you can just tell a love for this game. Like, he, he loves Survivor. And it's a shame we didn't get to see him play again. Which is just what I appreciate, I think, with anybody from this season giving giving us their time, of course, and, and just the stories we're learning and kind of, you know, these are people who are classified as celebrities going into this and are classified as celebrities going out of it. You know, they've had a lot more going on in their lives and career than a simple show like Survivor, which no disrespect to people in season one and the Channel 10 seasons that, you know, there's far more... Ed- interesting stuff you might argue to talk about in their lives so it's kind of it's it's great to be able to hear from this part of their lives in which you know they clearly still hold dear enough to them that they're not only willing to give us their time to talk about it but in the case here of of david you know give us three hours of his time to talk about it yeah exactly look i think it just shows you what survivor means to people you know it's an interesting game it's a it's a game that not many people get to play, and someone like David Oldfield, who's done plenty in his life, um, yeah, still likes enjoys talking about it fifteen years later. So I think it says a lot for the game of Survivor. And I'm pretty intrigued to see you read a book. So um, <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, you read it, maybe I'll read it. So you know, <laughs> I'm feeling really you'll read it, Ben. Yeah, I'll read it. I definitely will. But uh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna put together this compilation. We keep talking about it of all the Survivor contestants in Australia who have written books because there's quite a few out there. So that's uh, an interesting little montage that will be. But we've obviously got still plenty of come here in season two. Plenty of uh, good interviews and good episodes. Of course, our next episode will be our episode eleven recap, our penultimate episode recap, which is a very very interesting one. We've got a tie in that. We had a little talk about it there to David and a very unique tie in that one. And then from that point on, obviously, uh, the finale is still to come and more interviews. We're obviously very hopeful on getting Nicole on the show. We've got Imogen and Guy lined up. And we're also very hopeful on tracking down Justin as well. And then, of course, Dicko, 
we're, we're crossing those fingers. We know we've got to go back and get Elton on. And if we just happen to get lucky in finding Ben and Gab, we'll obviously uh, add them too as well. But throughout all of those, a reunion is planned. And then, of course, our big wrap-up episode, we might try and get Cable and uh, Matt back on as well to kind of talk about uh, this season in general as well. So, so much still to come here, Matt. We're obviously very close to the end of our second season of Australian Survivor Archives in covering the second season of Australian Survivor. So, I don't know about you, but I'm, in the words of a great man who sadly knows longer with us i'm excited anytime you do a big kev re- reference ben i'm excited too but yeah look plenty to come uh we're getting closer to the end now but still plenty of good stuff to come that's the main thing but i uh, hope everyone's enjoying our coverage of season two celebrity survivor so far and uh stay tuned for plenty more now ben we uh we always play a song at the end what are we going to play today well, we're going to get to that. Just let me do a bit of self-advertising for the show first, Matt, because we're going to be uh, we're going to be that way. Um, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. If you haven't followed us already, hit us up on those. Subscribe on all the podcast channels, like and uh, leave us some feedback as well. Five out of five for today's episode. Let's be honest, and we always do, as Matt kind of said, appreciate uh, people following us and uh, finding out what you do think of the show. Ringing endorsement there from David Oldfield. As he said, we should have hundreds of thousands of listeners. So help us get to that target. And uh, maybe Matt will release that other audition tape that he never did. I I don't know where I was going with that. Uh, But, yes, you're right. We play out on a song and uh, we didn't get to get this on air. But David Oldfield did give us a song to play out on. Now, we played out with Simply the Best by Tina Turner last week. But this is a genuine David Oldfield request. The first time I think we've ever got a contestant to give us a song to play out on. And he said he's a bit of a fan of the Beach Boys. And he wanted us to play this. Good vibrations. What a song. What a great track and what a great interview. We'll speak to you next week. Australian Arts Survivor Archives. My name is Ben and I need to learn how to read to read his book. My name's Matt Dyson, and I've got a book to read. I
the happening with her.